And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That rather magical time when, you know, like anything can happen, and tonight, tonight we're going to be wading into what you might call deep waters. When I started the show many, many years ago, the one thing that Art Bell told me, remember, he's the guy that kind of suckered me into doing this. Oh, come on, Nick, it's easy, you know. You'll have millions of listeners. <clears throat> anyway, one of the things he said was, and he kind of emphasized this over and over and over again, he says, don't. Whatever you do, do not do politics. So, of course, tonight we're breaking uh, Art's first law. We're going to be doing politics. We're going to be doing it from a bit of a different perspective. I mean, in case you hadn't noticed, a few days ago, we had an election. And in some quarters, you wouldn't notice because there's an awful lot of people on the side of the uh, uh, group that, that did not win that are saying that it's foul, it's a cheat, it's uh, fake, it's, uh, well, you can imagine all the things they're saying. And so if you go to the other side of midnight and you click on tonight's banner, which says another hyperdimensional election for November 9th, 2020, um, and click on that, that will take you to tonight's show with our guests, uh, Richard Spence and Laura London. We'll get to them in a moment. And just uh, hit on the um, uh, fast links where it says Richard Spence or Richard or Laura. And you click on mine, and that will take you down to item number two, which is a news story, which basically is discussing some of the details of the Trump campaign's um, effort, intention, to fight the election and the provisional results announced uh, yesterday morning uh, in court. And, I mean, some of the things they claim they're finding are very innovative and very intriguing you know in a novel or in a tv movie or but but in real life anyway nine of these have been submitted to court so far and all nine have been rejected for various reasons mostly because the uh suits do not contain evidence i mean to me this is very puzzling because if as the president is maintaining he's won and all the votes for, for Biden are basically bogus. And there's evidence to back this up. Massive voter fraud in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada, maybe Georgia, which are the key you know, battleground states of, of this uh, cycle. You would expect that the Republicans, who obviously will benefit if Trump has four more years, you'd expect them to be lining up supporting his position. And they're not. I mean, I saw Governor Christie, who, of course, was a member of uh, President Trump's original transition team. He was, in fact, head of it four years ago. He was on one network this morning saying, you know, if, if Donald's right, bring on the evidence. Um, the most innovative conspiracy theory that I have heard, and I've heard this because I'm kind of part of a number of email chains 
some of them run by avid Trump supporters. And, you know, I'm just like a little bird on the wall, just watching and listening and looking at the ebb and flow of conversation. And there are lots of interesting links. And, you know, you click on the links and you look and see what's being proffered. The most interesting aspect of the conspiracy that Biden is really not president-elect, that Trump really is one, and there's this massive effort to defraud the country and him by stealing the election. The most interesting theory has to do with Michigan, which I saw sometime this afternoon. Apparently, some retired now member of the intelligence community, and we all know how much we can trust them, is spreading the word that secretly, in anticipation of massive voter and mail-in ballot fraud by the Democrats, that Trump secretly had the ballots in every state watermarked. And now in certain states, and they picked Michigan, um, which of course is run by a Democratic governor, that Trump has not gotten along with. Apparently, according to this, this story, which is making the rounds on the internet and is being passed off through these Trump supporter email chains, um, the National Guard has now gone in and commandeered the ballots in Michigan. And they have subjected the uh, ballots to a scanning process looking for an invisible watermark that Trump, with extraordinary foresight, had carefully but surreptitiously placed on all the ballots. And that way they can tell real ballots from fake ballots, counterfeit ballots, okay? Anyway, the bottom line in this is they're finding 70% fraud. Let me repeat that. In this story being passed around by Trump supporters, they are finding ostensibly in this watermark, you know, double sting operation, 70% fraudulent ballots voting for Biden. Gosh. So what I'm intrigued with is um, is, this, is, is the kind of the details of the story because for one thing, every state conducts under law its own separate voter functions. The laws around voting, registration, identification, mail-in ballots, all of this. The federal government has zero role to play. Furthermore, because each state is divided into congressional districts and each congressional district has different candidates, you know, for House and local down to sheriffs and, you know, superintendents of school boards and various voter, um, uh, uh, you know, referendum items, every district has to print separate ballots all over the country thousands and thousands and thousands of separate districts with separate Republican and Democratic oversight, to say nothing of the secretaries of state. And I'm just kind of wondering how all this secret um, watermarking of ballots all over the country was carried out by the president when, in fact, he has nothing, either legally, politically, or technically, to do with the printing of ballots. 
And this process is overseen by joint committees of Republicans and Democrats. I mean, in this country, we love institutional bureaucracy. So the more layers of people watching and the more opposite members you can get on, the better. One kind of wonders how this vast conspiracy, which the perpetrators of this of this story, this model, say <clears throat> is now being extrapolated to, I forget how many other states. It's something to do with not only mail-in ballots, but also another wrinkle in this story is that there is a computer hack in something called Dominion Voter Software, which was supplied again to Michigan. And the uh, extrapolation is that this same hack, which was commanded and carried out by, quote, the deep state, took whatever ballots the observers in the uh, uh, ballot counting process observed and changed it invisibly in the computer. So it didn't matter what the ballot said. You know, whoever was running this hack basically just programmed in Biden and eliminated, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of, of Trump votes. That's the story. The problem is when you start to examine it in detail, it totally breaks down. There's no evidence anywhere, not the least of which is if this was true, if this story is making the rounds within Republican circles and the Republicans in the House and the Senate need the president to continue their you know agenda for the next four years, one in the Republican Party at some level of visibility, like Governor Christie. Why aren't they jumping on this story? Unless it's total, total fiction. Back in the good old days, <clears throat> when we didn't have social media and Facebook and Twitter and all that, life was a lot simpler. Anyway, we're going to be dealing with the histories of previous elections and some of the kind of choke points and the idea that we're so desegregated, we're so, you know, opposed to each other. 70 million people, 71 now as of uh, uh, this evening, voted for Trump and 75 million and change voted for Biden. That means it's pretty evenly split. Does this mean that we're at loggerheads as an electorate, that we can't talk across the aisles, work across the aisle? Uh, that a Biden administration couldn't get things done. Those are some of the things we're going to talk about tonight when we uh, bring on our guests. Let me go through a couple other news items here, because while all this is going on, of course, we're we're in the midst of a raging pandemic. 120,000 new cases reported just today, and I haven't uh, monitored closer the death count, but it's been averaging about a thousand people in the United States alone dying of COVID per day. <clears throat> okay. A few weeks ago, a couple, three weeks ago, I, I very cautiously presented some extraordinary data. If you look at item number two in my items, this is a screen grab of, a, um, uh, of the European CDC death count by day uh, for November 7th. And if you click on it, it gets bigger. The thing that's most remarkable and what's really stuck out to me as soon as I saw this display is the jagged up and down, extraordinarily rhythmic pattern to the death counts. If you put your cursor 
in the actual website, which we'll get to in a moment, on any of these points, it gives you a day and a number of cases and or a number of, of deaths, and you can just move your cursor left and right, and the line will follow. And you can see that this periodicity for the peaks and the valleys of the death counts per day has an extraordinary, repeating, relentlessly rhythmic periodicity of seven days. Seven solar days. Over and over and over and over again. Okay, moving on. Uh, item number three. This now, from the same CDC, European CDC website, is a listing of the cases worldwide. And number four, if you scan down a little further, what I've done is I've simply taken the two graphs and I've superimposed them to exactly the same scale, one over the other. And what you want to look at very carefully is when you superimpose, you know, two white lines, you get a brighter white line. And in the middle of the graph, where the uh, plots overlap, because remember, the cases have been rising and the deaths have been kind of constant, if you can call that extraordinary number uh, constant, uh, with these average peaks and valleys. Where they overlap, you'll see that the peak of deaths occurs on the same day as the peak of the number of new cases. And the dearth of deaths, the low point in the number of deaths per day, occurs at the low point in the daily number of cases. And by any science that we think we know, this is impossible. Let me repeat that. By any science that the medical community thinks they know, this is not possible. So what's going on? Well, I have my theories and assumptions, and we'll get to those, uh, you know, sometime in the in the uh, not too distant future. But what I wanted to do, I just lost my website here. Hang on a second. What I wanted to do was to point to the last item uh, in that list, and that is item number. Wait for it. Six. Number seven, number you know number five is the actual European CDC website, so you can go and check all this stuff uh, yourself. Number six is the one that's really amazing, because what I found a few days ago, because it was sent to me by one of our listeners, was a study, not yet peer-reviewed, published by three scientists, one from uh, Israel and two from the University of Illinois. They have noticed this same bizarre periodicity. And they actually wrote a paper called Oscillatory Dynamics in Infectivity, that's the number of cases per day, and death rates of COVID-19. And they are as baffled because this does not comport with anything that we would think of in terms of mainstream science. I mean, they, they are as baffled as I would be if I didn't know a little bit more about what might be going on, um, including the remarkable 
tetrahedral geometry of the spike proteins on the surface of the coronavirus itself. That tetrahedral configuration says to me hyperdimensional torsion field physics. Well, I am, as I said a couple weeks ago, I'm going to try to get these guys or one of them on the show to talk to for a, an evening. And uh, <clears throat> let me read from their paper, because again, that link is really crucial. They've, they've noticed this periodicity, they've noticed the simultaneity, and they are baffled. I mean, they put out certain tentative ideas, but you can tell they're, they're not really attached to them because they just don't make any sense. Let me read you one line from their paper, and then uh, we will continue the conversation when I get one of them on the air. Even though these effects could be, to some extent, caused by period oscillations, periodic oscillations in human measuring and reporting of these events, as we've said many, many times, we, the authors, they say, cannot exclude more profound reasons for these observations. And what do you think they mean by profound reasons? Is it possible, looking at these two graphs and how they're simultaneously coinciding when there's no real connectivity that you can think of? Well, the only thing that I can think of is there's some external force which is impelling these events simultaneously in totally separate phenomena. Or are they totally separate? Anyway, we will continue this conversation at another time, but I thought you'd like to know that um, there are some very interesting professional eyes looking at this mystery. If you look at those graphs in their paper, it's obvious this is going on worldwide, country to country, vastly disparate political systems, economic systems, etc. Yet this simultane simultaneity, I'll get that right, shows up. It should not, which to me is foundational for the fact that there's something absolutely weird, bizarre, crucially important to pay attention to about this virus because it's doing things that no other diseases that we have mapped, as far as I know, in human history have ever done. And the reason I know that is because if this kind of oscillatory periodicity was part of normal medical knowledge, <clears throat> why would these guys in Illinois and in Israel be writing a paper about the anomaly and talking about potentially profound reasons it exists. Okay, um, the election. My guests this morning are Dr. Richard Spence. Uh, Dr. Spence is a now professor emeritus of history at the University of Idaho. He's been on the show many, 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 many times. He's kind of our resident historian. You can read the rest of his bio there on the uh, other side of Midnight Guest page, so I won't go through it again and again, because you guys can do that yourself. Our other guest tonight is uh, Laura London. Laura's a, 
psychologist. She studied experimental psychology at the University of Washington and earned her undergraduate degree in neuropsychology from a private Jesuit university. After working for many years in neurology, neuroimaging, and nuclear medicine at the University Hospitals of Cleveland and its VA Psychiatric Hospital, she left that scene and entered into a 17-year Jungian analysis, sending her deeply into the work of Carl Gustav Jung. She attended a wide variety of lectures, workshops, and seminars, and eventually wound up in 2015 creating a podcast called Speaking of Jung, which if you click on that, which I think is somewhere there, and if it's not, Laura, we can put it in after the show, um, you'll find some very interesting discussion. Laura's here tonight kind of as an observer. She's going to add some uh, psychological, shall we say, um, oversight in terms of what we're talking about. Um, and there are some interesting things she brings to the table, which are part of her items. If you go to her fast link and click on uh, some items, including some astrological input from a mutual friend of ours, uh, Rick Levine, because that's why I called this show tonight another hyperdimensional election. Because the first one that I really tracked and monitored was the one of Barack Obama. In fact, I even put out a, a DVD called The Hyperdimensional Election of Barack Obama. And I saw and see certain fingerprints from that experience in this experience. And uh, we may get into some of those tonight. Anyway, without further ado, let me welcome my guest to the other side of midnight, Rick Spence, Dr. Spence. Welcome back. Hello, hello. I'm not hearing Rick Spence. Very weird. Why am I not hearing Rick Spence? Everything is the way it should be. Oh, don't tell me that the technological gremlins have surfaced once again. Hmm. Keith, do you see anything that's wrong? Hello, hello. I'm here. Can no, you hear I, me? I, 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 all right. I, I hear Laura. I, I do not hear Rick. I don't hear Rick either. Did he he's get dis? Online. Did he get disconnected? Uh, no, he's still there, and his icon is indicating that there's audio coming from him. Hmm. Just don't hear him. Well, let let us do this, okay? Why don't we get rid of him and then redial and see if we can reconnect, okay? Okay. In the meantime, uh, we got about five minutes to the bottom of the hour. Laura, you and I are going to have exclusive conversation for five minutes. <laughs> so, what's Where your overall? Say again. Where should we go? Well, my question is, what what's your impression of what's going on? I mean, um, I don't know who you voted for. I don't care. Uh, you don't know who I voted for. You shouldn't care. But what we're looking at is a common scene tonight where an enormous part of the country, like half the country, really seems determined to not believe the same procedural um, uh, results from various election bureaus and, and uh, secretaries of state all over the country that we have in countless uh, previous elections, including the one that elected Donald Trump, where he won <clears throat> in the Electoral College by something less 
than 80,000 votes in, in those three states that he won, the Midwest states. Uh, he was able to, you know, pick up those electoral votes by, I think it was 11,000 in Wisconsin and 40,000 in Michigan, and I forget how many, maybe 20,000 in Pennsylvania. The point is it was razor thin then, and I don't remember any Republican, or Democrats rather, saying, oh, Donald Trump stole the election. So why are we now at this loggerheads of literally a large percentage of Americans tonight do not accept that the Biden presidency is on track for inauguration on the 20th of January, 2021. Is that right? Uh, a large percent of the population believes that it was, uh, there was some sort of funny business going on? Well, right? polls are very suspicious, but uh, I must say I've seen an awful lot of interviews, you know, the, these ran, random man and woman on the street interviews. And to a person, the Trump people are all claiming the vote has been stolen. Because they're taking well, their cues from the president. Yes. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is going on psychologically? Well, I don't know what's going on psychologically, but I do know that there is not a lot of confidence in the Electoral College. And what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing privately is a lot of people would like that totally restructured. Well, wait, wait, wait. That, that's a separate issue from can you trust the results? You know, the whole idea of the Electoral College uh, being kind of shifted uh, in terms of population, that it overly favors minorities in, in the rural parts of the, of the country. I mean, you can have a state like Montana, which has, you know, what, maybe a million, two million people. And then you can have California, which has 30 million. And the uh, Electoral College gives, you know, an extraordinary weight to rural counties and rural states compared to urban centers um, in a way that a lot of people have argued is inherently unfair. And when we get Rick back, uh, I'm going to be asked. There you are. There you are. Okay. You're I'm here. Very, very quiet. Um, so what we're going to do is I'm going to continue uh, this line of questioning. And then after the bottom of the hour, uh, I'll bring you on, Rick, and we'll We'll talk about the Electoral College because that's where I kind of wanted to begin anyway. Um, okay. Is it really relevant? Was it relevant when it was instituted? Did it have a good reason? Was it founded in the, the need of the founders to kind of give obeisance to certain factions like landowners that owned slaves, that kind of thing? In other words, we'll get into all of that. But back to you, Laura. Um, what I'm asking is why do people who, I mean, we've been living through this process for our entire lives. Why is this the election when an awful lot of people on the side that lost, or certainly from all the trends, appears to have lost, because of course the vote will not be formally certified for several weeks by the various states, and they don't all do it on the same day. You know, it's spaced out, and then of course it all comes to a head when the Electoral College meets in December, I think it's December 3rd, and has a formal vote. And at that time, the election is certified as proven. But in all these previous elections, the extrapolations by statisticians and mathematicians and network, um, uh, you know, um, election, you know, uh, broadcast uh, re result boards and all that, 
no one has really objected to their projections, including the current president, until this election, which makes me think there's something really different about this election. Well, didn't we vote differently this time? For instance, I used the mail-in ballot, which I got a couple months ago. I had never done it that way before. It seems like there was a lot of room for human error, um, foul play that didn't exist before. Because in the past, I would go to a voting, use an old-fashioned voting booth, right? And the punch and the punch card. And now there's a lot of room for error with this mail-in thing. Do you remember all the controversy about the United States Postal Service that was going on this past summer? Anyway, um, what I want to do now is um, we're back to the bottom of the hour, and I've got to do a break. So let's uh, put all our guests on hold, and I'll do that there. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to uh, do something a little bit different. Um, And if I can figure out, oh, there we are, okay. We're going to be playing some campaign songs from previous elections. I thought this would be kind of fun for bumpers. So here's one from 1928. Let's see if you can hear who it's for. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary... Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers, and interesting viewpoints. 
It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. The other side of the news can be heard here on this network, on this channel, on this website, on this URL, every Friday evening, two hours, 7 to 9 p.m. Pacific Time. I warn you, you'll miss it at your own peril. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, the 8th of November, 2020. My God, the end of the year is in sight. Ah, what a year. What was it the Queen Elizabeth called a year, many, many years ago, an annus horribilis, which is Latin for horrible year? I mean, 2020 is definitely going to go down in the books as, well, it's going to go down in the books. Okay, Rick, um... The electrical, co- the electrical. Oh, I'm in great shape electrical. tonight. Yeah, well, it's kind of updated the 21st century. The electoral college. It's always bothered me because I've seen arguments that it's really what makes the American experiment work, and then recently, last you know, 10, 20 years, I've seen arguments that it's really a holdover that should be gotten rid of. And one clear example is tonight. You know, we've got, what, 75 million ballots for Biden. We've got 71 million for Trump. In any other Western democracy, you know, people's votes win. But we have to go through this two-step process, which gets back to the idea of federalism and, you know, decentralizing the electoral process to the individual states. And then everything gets kind of bollock stuffed because people I mean Trump is now again in terms of electrical 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 electoral college votes has lost twice with the popular vote when the electrical the electoral vote I'll get that right tonight I'm going to keep going until I get it right electoral electoral okay um comes out you know the way everyone would kind of expect in synchronization and there's something inherently, as Laura was pointing out before the break, that makes that whole system very suspect to 21st century voters. 
So how the hell did we get an electoral college? Well, it's in the Constitution, all right? That's how we got it, along with everything else in the Constitution. Yeah, then all Constitution also had what? Slaves as three-quarters humans or something? Well, that that was eventually a compromise that came. That was the three-fifths compromise. Ah, three-fifths. Because that was the whole thing of that, you know, the the southern states were... uh, had a much less of a population. The, the, the population of what would become the Confederacy was about half that of the North, and then about 40% of that population were African slaves. And so basically, uh, slave hunting states wanted to have it both ways. Um, they wanted to have their slaves counted as, as, as a population, but on the other hand, they didn't want to give them any political rights. I mean, okay, these people are not going to, you know, they're not going to be able to vote. They are property. They're not actually human. But nevertheless, we want them considered to be three-fifths of a human in order to enhance our state's clout in, in the uh, a portion of, of political power, hmm. uh, which is actually a pretty cynical arrangement if you think about it. But, you know, that, that the argument went back and forth. Now, the Electoral College has been complained about since at least the mid-19th century. I mean, it didn't take to the 20th century for people to catch on that. Then the main criticism then and now was that it is a um, medieval anachronism. All right. So I'm not sure legitimately how medieval it is, but I would argue that you could make a good case that it is an anachronism. Why does it exist? A couple of reasons. One was that if you go back again, maybe this is something we can talk about more this evening, you know, what did the United States actually look like when it came into being at the end of the 18th century? And so one of the things we have to keep in mind is that before the United States of America existed, there were the British North American colonies. And those colonies had all been separately established. They were separate political entities. They each had their colonial legislature and particular political customs and system of landholding. So that's always something to keep in mind that, you know, this is why at least state legislatures in the original states can argue that, well, we, we actually predate. We are a legislative body that existed before the United States Congress. We are the legislative bodies that essentially approved the Constitution and the creation of the United States government and, and the Congress that went along with it. So in other words, these, these state regimes, these colonial regimes that then became states, already had a kind of history and they already had customs. But the other thing about them is that they weren't united. Remember, the, the British didn't administer their North American colonies as a single entity. They administered it as essentially a dozen separate colonial corporations that had a very limited degree of internal self-government, but were basically economically hostage to the parliament in London. So you had a lot of disparity between... Rick, let let me ask a question. Yeah, okay. Was that dictated in large part because, you know, Britain was across a very large ocean and you couldn't really effectively bureaucratically manage the colonies from Britain? It was impossible so they had to have local control, local rule. Yeah. Well, also because people in London don't want to be bothered with every little thing. That really wasn't that really wasn't an issue. See, the whole reason why colonies existed. This was the view from London. 
The view from London and Parliament there is that these colonies basically grew out of royal chartered companies that had set them, they essentially were economic ventures that then became colonial political entities. But the whole reason why these colonies existed was to provide resources and markets for the mother country. That is, the only reason they existed were, was as an economic enterprise. And that's one, of the, that's one of the reasons why, you know, if you look at most of the issues in the revolution itself, the whole issue of taxation, the issue of imports and exports, uh, the price of tea, for instance, mm. becomes a political issue. Because the whole relationship between England and the colonies was governed by economics, and, and therefore the, the idea was that the, the colonies should make money for the mother country, and that was the only thing that was important. That's the only thing that we really care about. And therefore, the, the fewer expenses that we have to bear, the more that they can support themselves and manage their own affairs, well, that, that's, just, that's just practical. Now, could you have, this is one of these kind of what-ifs that never happened, could you, as the parliament, the, the British parliament, have granted full political rights to British subjects and the subjects of these colonies. You could have. I mean, you, it would be more problematic trying to... In other words, they could elect members to set in the Parliament in London. And true, it was a month's trip across the Atlantic to get there, but things went back and forth all the time. But and, the, the and, and, gets, and, yeah. and the pace of life was much different because yeah. of the limitations of technology. So if you had a vote, you could easily have scheduled it so that, you know, let's say Franklin could have gone back and forth between the colonies and London and been able to represent his government as part of one of the states, right? It was, yes. It was difficult, but it wasn't impossible. And the main thing about it, though, is that politically empowering, granting full political rights to all of the colonists, well, then meant that they were going to vote in essentially national elections. They were going to have a cloud in that. They would then form some kind of general political interest group. In other words, the Americans would become like the Scots and the Irish, right? Oh. See, England was already managing other territories. I mean, essentially these countries that they, the other uh, states in the British Isles that they had effectively conquered, but they had integrated those, so it wouldn't have been impossible to integrate the Americans, but it would have added another, another level of complication, which no one wanted, because the colonies there were there to make money. And when you lived in the colonies, you were granted the protection of the British crown. Uh, they would argue you were pretty much left alone to manage things on your own, so what are you complaining about? Um, that, by the way, was, was the, the general view of the American Revolution through English eyes was that the American colonies or the rebels were immensely ungrateful people. <laughs> they really were. They were just immensely ungrateful people who didn't know when they were well off. Hmm. And there, so, um, so the electoral college is there. But it, in in the American colonies, in other words, there was a there was a society, there were political establishments. There were, there were the rich and the poor. There we go. If you want to look at one of the things that tended to divide people in the colonies before there, that became America, and you can still look at one of the dividing issues today, the rich and the poor. The colonies had their 1%. I mean, they had a 10%, they had a 5%, and yes, they had a 1%. 
an example of that would be is that in New York, um, the Duke of York, who's essentially named the place after himself, had made large land grants. One of the things he wanted to do was to create large landowners. You know, running things the way you do in England. Have landowners that will keep the peasants in line. And so it, in the Hudson Valley, in the main populated areas of New York, there were five families. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Well, what, the wasn't wasn't yeah. the idea of landowners also essential to the economic theory? Because basically in the 1700s, the major industry that provided you know, income to England was agriculture. And large yeah. land plantations would give you agriculture to then send the bounty back to the mother country. Yeah, and it was a way of managing agriculture. I mean, there's a certain logic to it. So the argument would be that, let's say you have a country full of small, independent farmers. You know, each of them have 20 to 100 acres. They grow their crops, but they essentially operate independently. Well, one of the things about small, independent farmers is that they're very vulnerable. Um they often have very limited resources. They don't have enough land to make a huge amount of profit. They're, they're basically at the mercy of, of the weather every year as it comes along. And so a, you can have famines in which a large proportion of the population could starve if the situation was bad enough. Mm-hmm. Now, the idea was is that if you take all of those little farmers and you place them under the strict but benign authority of a patroon, of a, of a landlord, remember, of a kind of aristocrat who will then manage them, really sort of, you know, literally lord it over them to have judicial <laughs> and economic control, uh, who will take, you know, will reap most of the profits from what they do, but will give them a certain degree of protection, because the idea is that a peasant who lives on a lord's estate because the Lord has greater resources and will, let's say, can accumulate food reserves, can you know, help them out if a famine comes along. But your chances that economically, your chances of survival are better off as a tenant farmer than as an independent farmer. You know. Um, well, in other all right, let me, get rich. Yeah. Let me interrupt yeah. again. In the in the Americas, the added problem was you not didn't just have weather, you had Indians. Yeah. I mean, you have people taking over and kicking out indigenous population of an entire continent but they didn't go peacefully and so individual farmers you know i'm thinking of those great westerns i used to watch as a kid where you know settlers were very very vulnerable to indians so you Mm -hmm. had you had double problems which is why consolidation made sense right well it's one of the reasons why people went off to the frontier and risked indian attack because very often what they were trying to do is that they were people who were landless. You know, if you landed in Baltimore, you know, if you come over in the mid-18th century, most of the good land near the coast is already taken. It's either taken by small farmers or it's taken by the large land-grant landlords. Again, like the five families that controlled two million acres in New York and pretty much everybody else worked for. Hmm. Um. By the way, when the revolution came along, those five families lost the special political status that they had. They did not lose their land. Oh. They still had exactly the same kind of control that they they had previously. But the whole question might be, why would you go off to the frontier, you know, have to cut down a lot of trees, risk attack by hostile natives? Well, because that was the one place that you could get free land. And and that gives you an idea as in a way 
how desperate people were. You know, if you wanted to essentially live on your own to establish independent farms, you had to get away from the area where the large estates, where the good land was already taken by somebody. And the only thing you could do there is you have to work for them. If you want to work for yourself as a farmer, you had to go to the frontier. Go west, young man. That's, go west. It It is. But, you see, that's the whole sort of engine that drives that. The reason why there's this constant migration. And remember, it's most people in American history never lived on the frontier. All right? 19th century, when all the wagon trains are gone, most people never rode on a wagon train. All right, only a relatively small percent of the, of, the, of the population did that because most other people who were living someplace in New York or New Jersey or Ohio and they had a farm or a business or so they were otherwise settled. But again, if you were looking for an area that you could sort of stake your claim on, the West was the area you could do that. I mean, you could go to California and you could hunt for gold, you could form farms, you could form a business to sell the implements to the people who hunted for gold, which is a smart thing to do, by the way. Whereas back East... Everything was taken. Everything that everything that was worth anything was already owned, and so you had to work for someone else, mm. or you had to leverage your business away from them. And so, yeah, you know, that's why the American frontier is this this kind of dynamic place. But you got to keep in mind what's really driving it isn't just an adventurous spirit. People don't go off to oh, no, the no. Oregon Trail just because you know they feel like they're adventurous. They go there because they're economically desperate, or become like the Donner Party victims of history. Yeah, okay. And you, that can happen. You can end up, you know, kick, turning cannibal. <laughs> You're trapped in the snow in the Sierras. But remember, that only happened once, or, you know, maybe two or three times. But not often. Most people managed to do it. It was a dangerous business. Of course, you also get something else. This is one of these things that, yeah, there also meant that there was, uh, Laura can maybe can chime in on this, but it's been called the, uh, the, the sort of, semi-sociopathic or psychopathic aspects of the American frontier that you also got a lot of people who really couldn't live in normal society. Oh, the misfits. And therefore, the misfits. Yeah, I mean, you know, those people that we love in Western movies, but a lot of them were, uh, were psychos. Wasn't, wasn't that Marilyn Monroe's last movie with Clark Gable, The Misfits? Oh, The Misfits, yeah. 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 But, but yeah, much, the, much the frontier was a place where if you were weird, on the frontier, weirdness actually was a survival value. Yeah, or, or it, wasn't, it wasn't as noticeable. I mean, you know, where back east, you know, um, being hired as a regulator to kill rustlers was probably a difficult job to get. I'm sure you could be hired to kill someone, <laughs> but it was, that, that's why the... The, the problems uh, of, of, you know, administering justice over very wide, sparsely inhabited areas. But there was. There was a great deal of violence. Uh, the, West, the West was a, a violent place. And, and part of it that made it violent was, I think, just the kind of psychological profile that uh, you got among, I mean, most of the population weren't psychos, but there was a higher proportion of them there, arguably, than, than you would find elsewhere, because that's the one place that they could, they could get away to. And then you also had the competition for these resources. Mm. You know, so there's this competition for land, and then, you know, then the railroads move in, and you know, you know how that works out. And if the railroads want land and a bunch of small farmers want land, who got the land? The railroad did. Mm. So that kind of brings us back in a long way towards <laughs> there's, there's always an elite. And so... 
one of the re- the reasons why the electoral college comes in this would be my the the, the primary reason was to ensure that the existing elite elite would maintain its position. It, it is a check on the mob. Okay, mm. the last thing that anyone wanted to do, who considered themselves a responsible adult in 18th century America, was to give the vote to what was considered to be a large number of unwashed, largely uneducated people. Remember, the guys who, you know, our founding fathers, as we call them, the 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 Continental Congress the whole sort of political organization that grew out of it was, was from the existing colonial elite, okay? And those, pe- those people who generally had positions before in the colonial economic and political structure, uh, if you chose the right side in the Revolutionary War, you kept that, that power. And so it was a check. I mean, it was to prevent the very thing from letting a majority of the mass electorate make critical decisions because you don't trust those people Mm. and therefore there had to be a way of ensuring that ultimately the vote on president didn't come down to the mass electorate it came down to the electors who were chosen for that particular particular task and that would be the other the other thing that fit into this is that because of the unequal populations of the colonies that became the states the smaller states felt that they would be completely overlooked yeah they would be run roughshod over by the more populous states yeah that's the the argument that i have heard in favor of the college in that it basically evened the playing field it doesn't even the playing field. I mean, I mean, California has what fifty-five electoral votes. I think Idaho has four. Nevada has six. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, that, that it's not even. I mean, it's not even based proportionally on on population, really. So, someone in California could argue that well, Nevada, based on its population, really has too many votes compared to us. But Nevada will always argue that you've got so many more that. It doesn't really matter, you know, that our that our six are well. well, well but how how just are sort of lost in the shuffle? How are the number of electoral votes per state allocated? That I don't know. What <laughs> I mean, there is it is increased over a period of time. Um, I thought it was population based, roughly, kinda. Rough. It is roughly kinda, but it's not exactly. I mean, isn't it technically having to do with the number of congressional districts and that kind of thing? Yeah. But it's always the smaller states will always have more or often will have more votes than it might be justified if you're simply counting voters. Because the idea is that they, they have to have enough to register in some way. I mean, this isn't a kind of uniquely American thing. So, you know, if you were to look at 19th century, when the, the German Empire was formed, there is a... And the Reichstag and the, the representation within the government. Prussia was half, the, you know, was the biggest state with half the territory and half the population. But they allowed the Bavarians, the Württembergers, and others to have a slightly larger part, so they would feel that they were committed to it in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, you you have to feel that you have some kind of role. So it's it was a a compromise to keep the smaller states feeling as if they had some sort of skin in the game, so to speak. But it was mostly to control the mob. And and so the question is, why 
why hasn't this been? I mean, of all of the different constitutional amendments that have come along, we've got what now, 27? I think we're up to 27, yeah. Yes, where, you know, the Electoral College is still there. I mean, senators became popularly elected. That was the 10th Amendment, I think. I think it's later than that, but it comes along in the, in the early, early, particularly early 20th century. But senators that essentially had been appointed by the, the state legislatures then became popularly elected. But the Electoral College remains, even though for the better part of a century at least, if not a century and a half, people have looked at that and go that that is a, that is a anachronistic institution. You know, even if you can make the argument that the mass of people in the colonies back in the 1780s or 90s were, well, just too dumb to vote effectively. Um, I mean, that itself is kind of a weird thing if you think about it. Yes, everyone's going to vote, but we really don't trust you, so we're going to create a whole other area that will that will temper that in some way. And it almost makes you wonder in a way, really, how important was mass voting to begin with? I mean, it, it's always made me suspect to some degree that it's always one of those things that's handed to people as if it's a great gift, but really it's a kind of empty one in many ways. Um, it, it seems to empower people, but it really doesn't empower people. I mean, for instance, I don't even think um, that electors are absolutely bound to vote the way that their constituents did. Well, wait, wait, wait. Then there's been a new Supreme Court ruling. They are. They are. Okay. But that, remember, you had to have a Supreme Court ruling to establish that. But, Mm -hmm. by the way, by the way, uh, Google is your friend. April 8th, 1913, the 17th Amendment. 17th. Okay. There we go. So so things have changed, but the Electoral College has, has stayed, and, and, and here's the reason why I think it has remained, despite everyone could look at it and argue, yeah, it's kind of archaic and really sort of, you know. Now, Taylor, important. why don't we hold that? Because it is undemocratic, yeah. We're coming up to the top of the hour, and I, I don't want to give short shrift to anything tonight, so why don't we hold it there? My guests this morning are Laura London, who's been very silent, thinking psychologically as to when she can contribute something that she's got some really cool stuff. Wait, wait till you see. And Dr. Richard Spence, uh, our resident historian. What we're going to do now is um, we're, we're going to take a break. As I said at the top of the show, I've got some surprises tonight. Here are some more campaign songs, which I thought would kind of be intriguing. This one is from 1948 from the Progressive Party. The donkey is tired and thin The elephant thinks he'll move in They yell and they fuss But they ain't fooling us Cause their brothers ride under the skin It's the same, same merry-go-round Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant Bob up and down on the same merry-go-round The elephant comes from the north The donkey may come from the south 
If you look, you'll find the donkeys behind, but they've got the same bit in their mouth. It's the same, same merry-go-round. Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant bob up and down on the same merry-go-round. If you want to end up safe and sound, get off of the merry-go-round. To be a real smarty, just join the new party and get your two feet on the ground. It's the same, same merry-go-round. Which one will you ride this year? The donkey and elephant bob up and down on the same merry-go-round. It's the same. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the mp3 files directly from the 19 point archives if you prefer to enhance your listener experience a new the other side of midnight podcast is being added to all show pages which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of radio with pictures thus easily accessing the corresponding show plus you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. Listen to the story of a strange romance. A story about mules and elephants. A mule was a queen who ruled quite well. Till the tragic clang of a wedding bell. Adieu, 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 The bride was sweet as donkeys go. But the groom was a scheming Romeo. People got scared. Oh. Began to squirm. When the mule hooked up with the pachyderm. Oh, housing cried the people loudly. But Jumbo did himself quite proudly. He moved into the White House fast when the elephant married the ass. People wondered why the donkey ate 
burped her husband like a monkey. The donkey burped when her mate had gas. When the elephant married the ass. Love, 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 what a wonderful thing. Love, love, love made the elephant sing. He loved his wife like he loved the plague. While he plucked the goose with the golden egg. The country's gotten high chrysitis. The mule's got chronic elephantitis. How did these things come to pass? And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight. We're playing for bumpers tonight some of these really amazing campaigns. And this, again, is the uh, 1948 Progressive uh, Party uh, of former Vice President Henry A. Wallace and U.S. Senator and singing cowboy Glenn H. Taylor. They deplored the Cold War stagnation of social progress begun under the New Deal and dissented, and this is the uh, campaign literature that they put out in the form of song. The elephant married the ass. Oh, love, 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 what a fabulous fate. Love, 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 as an elephant's fate. Picture what we would confront in a cross between a donkey and an elephant. Anyway, Rick, uh, back to the electrical. Electrical. I'm going to do that all night. This is nuts. <laughs> this is really nuts. Electoral College. So, why, despite one might argue its glaring flaws, has the Electoral College survived from the 18th century into the 21st? And here's the reason that I think explains it. You may have others, but this is the one that I'm going to offer. It's because it offers advantages to those people who know how to work the system. And think of it this way. If presidential elections or any other national election was simply decided upon how many votes you could get. If, in other words, they were all taken and basically thrown into a giant pile, and then you pick them, and whoever came out with more, then, in a sense, every one of those votes really would count equally. It would be infinitesimal, but there would be no difference from one play. They would all go into a single pool. But votes under the electoral system don't go into a single pool. They go into pools within those states, and then within those states, those votes, whoever wins the majority, generally sometimes it's split in a few cases, is then assigned the votes from the state. I mean, in other words, the, the, the uh, majority within, the battles are fought out, the electoral system means that the individual battles are fought out between states, and what you're actually competing for are the prize of the electoral votes from that state. Big states become much more important because they carry a larger electoral clout. So they become even more important than they would be if you were simply counting each vote individually into a single pool. So this is what it means when you get, so the battle then becomes not really for the mass vote. And this is why it makes it simpler from a political standpoint. If you really had to depend upon winning the majority of the votes in the entire country, then you would have to campaign for every one of those votes across the country because all those votes could count equally in the final tally and therefore a vote up in Barrow, Alaska would really be the same in that giant pool as a vote in Manhattan. So, on the other hand, when you can effectively, if you know how to do the math, see, that what it is, the Electoral College turns the whole thing into a math game. 
So you don't have to win every state. You don't have to compete in every state. What you have to do is concentrate your efforts in those states that count. You know, you add it up. How many votes do I need to win? I need 270. That's how much you need to win. Now, you can get more than that, but so long as you need 270, you can effectively ignore a lot of areas. You can concentrate your campaigning. And then you'll find out that if you look individually in states, of course, the population isn't equally divided throughout the state, and therefore certain districts carry greater clout. And so by carrying certain districts within a state, you can carry the state and reap its electoral votes. And by getting the right states, you can accumulate 270 votes to win without worrying about all the others. It is an easy system, or let's put it this way, it is an easier system to manage and, if necessary, to rig. It is a game that can be played, and it can work to your advantage. So let's put it this way. It worked to Donald Trump's advantage in 2016, didn't it? Because he didn't get the majority of the popular vote, and he would have lost if things had been counted that way. He won because of the Electoral College, and in this year would have been probably the same thing that that could have repeated itself again i mean joe biden may well come out with a a narrow majority of the popular vote but really that doesn't matter because it never mattered what mattered was the battle for particular states and particular districts within those states in order to play the numbers game of the electoral college and that is why it has persisted not because it's fair not because it's modern, not because it's democratic, but because it is effectively manageable and gameable. Do you think after this election, given the uh, real separation on both sides, that there will be a serious effort to circumvent the electoral, elect, I'll do it again, electoral college? There might be, but I wouldn't count on it. Now, that would because take a constitutional is, is amendment, right? Yeah. You'd have to change it that way, and you would have to get everyone else. It would be a, a lengthy process, and I'm not really sure it would succeed. Because, you see, the thing is, is that it will work to your advantage. I mean, look, it, it can work to your advantage as easily as it can work against you. If you know so how to work the that, system, that, you mean. That's that's what's that's what that's what's kept it into being. Is this one of those things that both parties? It, it's a much more manageable, control, gameable system that they can work with. Yeah, but what it so, results in is, for instance, a voter in Iowa has far more power than a voter in California because of the electoral college system. Yeah. I well, don't that, know. Do you see masses of California voters in the street demanding equal votes? Yeah, but well, they they may no, after this one. No, you one. don't, because because they're not they one they're they're generally not aware of that. Because you'd have to look, really look at the numbers closely. I mean, most people seem to have this sort of vague idea. That, yeah, the electoral college is kind of unfair, but you know, on the other hand, it's been around for a long time and it works. And it it, it works for the 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 professional political class. It, it's a it's a usable system, and while it may not work for you this time, it could work for you some other time. Hmm. So unless there's a real groundswell at the, at the population level, you're, you're saying, in, in essence, the Electoral College is going to stay with us. I think it's much more likely that it will remain than it will disappear. And I say it on the basis that it's been around this long, 
So what's really going to change that? I mean, why, why would the Biden administration want to change it? The Biden administration won by the electoral code. They, they won on both hands. But if they, look, yeah, well, they would have won Biden, in terms of popular vote. If Joe vote. Biden had simply had done it, pulled a Donald Trump, if, in this, this was conceivable, if he had not gotten the majority of the popular vote and he had won by the electoral college, would he then not take the presidency? No, he would, because he could argue I won fair and square. I well, according, according, to the law. The, according to the law, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't really think that there's a uh, a huge vested interest at the at the political level to change it. Uh, you know that could go, but it, it's a, a grassroots. I mean, first of all, you're going to have to introduce the bill into Congress. It's going to have to get that through both houses of Congress. Then it would eventually have to go through the states for ratification. Um, and I bet there would be any number of of forces that would fight tooth and nail to to keep the system. Well, look at the fate of the ERA, which, frankly, had much more egalitarian support, I would think. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So, um, yes. Yeah. This, this, uh, Laura, you, you put a map, a map in one of the windows. I think that's the Bush-Gore election. Right. You want to talk about it? I don't. I was hoping you guys would. I mean, look at that. What do you think of that? Uh, Rick, unfortunately, is not on Skype, so he can't see it. Uh, when you say that, what is it you're describing? Well, Tell right, me what's so the, there. The 2000 election, yeah. uh, George W. Bush and Al Gore, George W. Bush uh, gained 242 electoral votes and Al Gore 271. What is this map I'm looking at? Well, it looks like, uh, uh, you know, the United States with blue and red, and then there's Florida in yellow, and, of course, Florida was the huge uh, stickler in terms of ballot counts and extended ballot counts and Supreme Court intervention. And ultimately, Bush was declared, uh, in essence, by the Supreme Court, the winner. I, I, I think, Rick, that's the first time the, the court has ever be become involved in a, a national election. Am I, am I correct? Mm, probably not, but it's the most, one of the most recent ones. In which it's in which it's become involved. Well, but, I guess what I'm trying okay. to say is that I don't I don't think this is anything new. There's always going to be this contention. No. Yeah. Well, you're always going to end up with basically half the electorate, which is disenfranchised. That's what you're going to end up with. Yes. Yes. I mean, it's one of these things of. Uh, it, it, it's seemingly impossible to get much of the American electorate at a national level to, to you know, any much more than about 55% of them to vote for anything or vote for any particular candidate. So if you look, you know, one could argue, and I see I've heard this argument made, that the essential flaw in electoral democracy is that it is incapable of unifying people because the whole thing is built around a contest between different factions, and therefore there's going to be a winner and there's going to be a loser. And generally that means that about half the people, you know, half the active electorate is not going to get what they wanted. Now, you know, as I've pointed out in other shows, if you add in the 20 to 40 percent who routinely don't vote, okay, I mean, you never get more than about 80 percent of the population voting. 
I mean, the electorate voting. And, and are we, are we talking just the Americas? Or are we talking yeah. worldwide? Uh, just in the U.S. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I, other countries may have higher or lower ones, but the U.S. turnout tends is in the 20th century. It's generally been somewhere between about 55 and 60 percent of the eligible electorate votes. I think in the 96 election, if you go back and look at that, that was except that was like 49 percent. Right. Wow. Only, only 49, less than half. Okay. See, I could argue that if you get even less than half, it's not even a real election. But it is a real election. See. But it's, it's, but, but hang on, thing. hang on. It it it, it yeah. is it is by choice. In other words, all those people who don't vote, they're voting. They're they're opting out of the system, which means they literally, by their own initiative, do not have a voice. Do not have a say in what happens to the country. Or maybe what they're saying is that they just don't want either of the alternatives, you know, none of the above. That would be... See, if you created... Think of it this way. Think if you tried to create a threshold by which a, a candidate to be actually elected would have to get the majority of the electorate. And therefore, by staying home, you were casting, or or you would have to have a particular threshold. You know, the people, the, there has to be a certain purport. You have to have 70% of the electorate vote. Because, but again, it becomes this kind of, of numbers games in which ultimately a lot of votes, you see, the thing is you don't have to win you only have to win with the majority of the people who show up and vote. Therefore, keep in mind, that actually means that the smaller the electorate, well, the kind of a smaller group you have to deal with, you know, it becomes a, a smaller pool. It's more controllable. It's more controllable. Which, of course, so I think why for the last several decades, as far as you know, my lifetime looking at elections, everything has been done to make politics as boring and irrelevant to life as possible so the electorate who votes are driven down and down and down and ultimately it becomes more like um, house parties as opposed to political parties because well, if, 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 if you winnow away people getting involved what's left is more controllable this is how you win an American presidential election and again it comes back to the numbers game you do not have to try to win 51% or 50.1% of the entire electorate. Because you know that a portion of those people are not going to show up at all. 20% of them, a quarter of them, aren't even going to show up. So what you're competing for is to get the majority, or the majority in particular states and particular districts within those states, of the people who show up. So to elect a president, you need to get one-third of the eligible voters behind your candidate. Just one-third. And hmm. you can win. You never have to have everybody, and you don't even have to have 50%. You have to have a third. Which, of course, means that any president election actually is only elected by about a third of the of the electorate. The, the, the majority is never really involved. It's never a majority decision. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Presidents are not elected by a majority. They're elected by a majority of the people who show up in the key electoral states and the key districts within those states. That's how the system works. So then the question is, is this better or worse for the system? 
if you, by law, forced people uh, to vote, in other words, as part of your civic duty, you had to vote, and I think there are countries that do that, do you get better or worse government by snaring a whole bunch of people who could care less about politics, don't follow issues, don't, you know, pay attention to news, are basically living their own lives and could care less. If you if you put them in the pool, do you get better government or worse? Well, I don't know. What kind of a government can forces people to vote for candidates that they don't want to vote for? I mean, if you're literally saying that what you're going to do is is threaten me with jail. Well, you can also no, head, no, 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 no. You, you, right. you, you, you yeah. if, if you don't like either candidate, you do a write-in. You know, in every election, there are write-ins. Right. Like there's something like or, 45 different people that are part of the 19, uh, I'm sorry, 2020 ballot that you'll never hear of because they're all tiny, tiny, tiny fractional candidates who are doing it for whatever reason, up to and including ego, <clears throat> but they don't really affect the outcome. If you were, if you mandated that everyone who was a citizen had to vote as part of their, you know, constitutional duties or whatever, when you went and you didn't like the candidates for the two parties, assuming we had a two-party system at that point, you could write in anybody else and you would have fulfilled your mandate. Well, you could have, but there. what are the practical problems with that? One, you're going to have to create a law, then you're going to have to enforce the law, so now you're going to have to start arresting or fining people for not voting. Um, or you can just let them not show up, which accomplishes exactly the same thing. I mean, the, the end result is exactly whether they don't vote or whether they show up under duress and, you know, vote for Mickey Mouse in a write-in ballot, you know, whatever, whatever they vote for themselves, the, the end result is the same. Off the so top of my head, I... Why, yeah, why go through the bother? I, 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 I can't think of any country that forces, except maybe, you know, the old Soviet-style systems or whatever. I don't think there's any modern democracy, Western democracy, that mandates a citizen's vote. But I could be wrong, because I haven't looked at all of them. I want to get to this idea of unity because one of the big issues of this campaign between Trump and Biden, Trump is a divider. You know, he, he throws monkey wrenches everywhere. Biden is trying to be a uniter. And there's an awful lot of people I saw, <clears throat> again, interviewed yesterday, that their major, I mean, when the election was announced, which was 924, my time, mountain time, I watched it carefully to see when. The, suddenly, from coast to coast, we had this huge national block party. There were people, literally hundreds of thousands of people in the streets all over the country, dancing in the streets. I mean, the, the palpable joy of the Biden camp was obvious. And some of the interviews said, when they were asked why were they so joyous, it's because they felt that their their rights, their democracy had been had been perpetuated. It had been saved because this guy was going to unite the country. This seems to be an overwhelming desire by all the voters that I saw being interviewed all over the country. But your 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 um, contention, Rick, is America has never ever really been united even though we're called the united states of america let's take the time from now to the uh, bottom of the hour and kind of explore that 
How have well, we ever never been united? Well, one way to think about it is that if you were united, you wouldn't have two political parties. Right? Yeah, but or is that what we mean by is that what we mean by united or by well, you by united we we basically have a set of issues, we vote on them, one group wins, one group loses, but the losers then in legislation negotiate compromises so they do in fact get part of what they want because no one in a democratic system can rule autocratically because in the next election they'll be tossed out. No, and as long as you have two parties you can continually cycle between them I think is one of the songs we're singing. Um, well, let's let's go back to the beginning. Okay, let's go back to 1790. Let's take a portrait of the United States as it existed when it first became the United States. So there was a census taken in 1790. And I always, I'm always kind of interested in census statistics because they can, you can see sort of interesting things in them. So, and, and hang on, you know, and of, hang on, hang on. Yeah. And in the Constitution, it was mandated that census take place every ten years, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, what did the census find out? Well, did it find a country that was religiously, ethnically, economically homogenous? No. No, it didn't. I mean, first of all, it had a 1%, a 5%, and a 10%. Most of the population was relatively poor. A relatively few people were extraordinarily rich. In between were people who had some wealth in a kind of declining scale. So first of all, there was economic inequality. So this is one of the things that, you know, people, there's a great deal of talk about today. It has always existed, you know. We can argue philosophically whether it will always exist, but it was a very unequal society. The other thing about it is that if you looked at it ethnically, if you looked at it in a sort of ethno-cultural basis, about half the people in the new United States in 1790 were of English background. That is, they were descended. In fact, these were people who, 20 years before, considered themselves Englishmen. I mean, this is, this is one of the things, I think if you look at the letters of... Uh, of John Adams at one point, you know, sort of complaining about the king. One, one of the things that many of the proto-patriots were very offended by, by what they thought was the unfair economic treatment from London, was that they were being, they were being treated as second-class Englishmen. That's, that's basically mm. one of the things that fueled the rebellion, is that, is that you know, we're Englishmen, and as Englishmen we have certain traditional rights, but as colonial subjects those rights are being trod upon. And therefore, because you're not treating us as Englishmen should be treated, well, we're going to become Americans. That's the American Revolution in a nutshell. But the same guys who proclaimed themselves American patriots had at some point in their lives, for most of their adult lives, considered themselves subjects of the king, mostly Englishmen who ought to be treated in a certain way and felt they weren't getting it. But remember, English, per se, are only half the population. So what's the next biggest group? So the next biggest group, about 20%, one out of every five colonists, were African slaves. Well, there were some free Africans, but for all practical purposes, the African population in the colonies were slaves. And they weren't even counted as people at all. So one out of five people, technically, politically, don't even exist. You've got another 20% or so, well, let's move this way, another uh, 15% or so who are Scotch or Irish. 
And generally, they're Scottish or Scots-Irish. That is, they're British. They're not English. They're from the peripheral areas. Uh, and then the others were a combination of mostly other white Europeans, non-British. The French, Germans, quite a few of those, Dutch in New York, uh, even, and a smattering of Spanish, Portuguese, and others. So one of the things to keep in mind is that if we're talking about, well, you know, that wonderful watchword diversity, the United States from the beginning was a diverse place. In fact, if you look at the numbers closely, even the English, while they are the biggest proportion of it, were probably slightly less than 50%. So you can make an argument that there was really no pure ethnic majority. So it was never a homogenous country. Okay, It was never a country in which people were economically or politically equal. It was divided into this issue. And then there were the religious factors as well. So remember, the the Puritan ethic dominated in Massachusetts and much of New England. There was a strong Protestant Calvinist culture there. In places like Mar Maryland had been created as a colony for who? The Catholics. Mm. Okay, well, we're, were, we're, we're coming yeah. to the bottom of the hour. <clears throat> Let's hold the rest of this. My guests this morning are Dr. Richard Spence and Laura London, and we're talking about the hyperdimensional election of 2020. This is something interesting. This is from 1952. Vote. Stevenson, vote Stevenson, a man you can believe in, son. From Illinois, whence Lincoln came, his leadership has won him fame. A soldier man is always bound to think in terms of battlegrounds. But Stevenson, civilian son, will lead us till the peace is won. The Other Side of Midnight.com Join Richard C. Hoagland in an fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcast heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research, real data, real science. The other side of midnight.com. For Mr. You 
And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, November 8th. Uh, less than a week after the 2020 election, with all kinds of extraordinary controversies going on, the president insisting he's going to wrest uh, the election back from Biden through the courts, and, of course, the Biden folks uh, claiming there's nothing to wrest. Uh, this this is really interesting. These, these jingles, this is 1964. Imagine where we were psychologically in 1964. Laura, you had an interesting point, and then we'll get back to Rick. You made a very interesting point a la uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War. You want to kind of uh, tell folks what you, what you sent to me? As I was listening to you two talk, I was remembering that before the Civil War, the United States were all separate, and people used to, stay, used to say the United States are. And it wasn't until the Civil War ended that people started saying the United States is. Um, under President Lincoln, we sort of became one nation. Is that right? Hmm. Rick? Well, it, it reinforced the idea of a kind of central nation because the, the whole sort of concept of, a, of the Confederacy as a separate nation is that there were incompatible cultures in the two regions of the country. And this is, you know, this is the, the argument that you would get from secessionists in 1860, and they would argue it's not really about slavery. Slavery is simply the thing that northerners harp on because they can use it as a moral weapon against us, but really it's about cultural and regional hegemony. And Mm, that's a complicated issue. It was about a lot of things, um, but certainly, what one of the they were, there were great differences between. There were differences in the social structure. Uh, a lot of the South tended to have this kind of semi-aristocratic, paternal social structure. The large landowners thought that they were God's gift to Earth in, in most of the Confederacy. Uh, they were a relatively small part of the population, but they actually saw themselves as this kind of, you know, cavaliers was the term that was often used, as a, as a kind of quasi-aristocracy. That's what it was that they aspired to be. They aspired to be uh, a, a group in society similar to the European royalty. And it almost sounds like it almost sounds like the French musketeers. Yeah, yeah. The, the cavalier was actually this term that goes back to the English Civil War in the 17th century and the supporters of the king. Um, but it was, it was something that a lot of the large landowners in the South, almost none of whom actually came from aristocratic background. See, that's another thing you could do in America. You could come from a dirt-poor background in Europe and through a little bit of luck and whatever it was, you could turn yourself into a quasi-aristocrat. Um, mm. That's what... Uh, I mean... In this case, uh, anybody who's, you know, it's the, uh, has seen Gone with the Wind or read the book, <laughs> that the whole O'Hara family, mm. I mean, one of the things that's, I think, more apparent in the book is that, you know, really the, the founder of the whole family was this, you know, poor Irishman who came over and made it rich and became a large landowner and then, you know, modeled himself on what was what what was the the social idea? What was the, what was the ideal? What was the highest sort of level of society you could aspire to uh, in in most places in that time? Well, it was to be a big landowner. Those were the important people. Aristocrats 
had lived in castles. I mean, look, you live in a hut or you live in a castle. Mm. Most people that live in huts, everybody would want to be the guy who lives in a castle. So the South tended to be much more agricultural. It had, you know, it's you know, an interesting question in this that we really can't go into here is to whether this sort of separate Southern cultural identity was mostly a kind of conceit of the Southern upper class or whether it was generally shared by much of the rest of the population, at least the free white population. Uh, considering how many of them fought actively as volunteers for that idea, it seems that it was an idea that had some kind of currency to it. Yeah, because they aspired it, to be the big landowners someday themselves. Uh, or they simply didn't like Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think... Let, uh, to it, let, we're we're going to be dealing with the Civil War shortly. Let's get back yeah. to 1790 and this census and the idea of united or not united. All right. So if you look at the country, it is it is a even at that point in time is a a mosaic with no absolute majority of any particular group. Of course, that doesn't really remember again. That in itself doesn't really matter because the country isn't governed proportionally by groups, right? It's governed by an elite, mostly from the English, but including smatterings of the Scots and the Irish and the Dutch. Remember, the biggest landowners in New York were descendants of Dutch colonists mm. who had adjusted themselves to being subjects of the British monarch, which wasn't too hard. But really, the people who controlled it, the people who controlled the land and the money uh, and, and the manufacturing, and that's not most of the, of, the, of the population within the country, but it was divided, and they're divided by religion. There are there are various forms of Protestantism, from the strictest sort of uh, Puritan Calvinism to the relatively kind of loosey-goosey Protestantism of William Penn. You know, Pennsylvania was kind of the Greenwich Village of the whole place. Hmm. Um, and, and then you had the you know, Maryland that was for Catholics. Uh, slaves weren't exclusively, but were largely in the South, where in some areas they were the majority of the population. Uh, one of the things I was reminding myself of is that Georgia, you know, which later became a, a colony, one of the last ones, and uh, and also later part of the Confederacy, Georgia initially was the, the one sort of southern colony that initially banned slavery. What? And they banned slavery. There was a time in which slavery was banned. It was legal in the Carolinas to the north and Virginia oh my God. and elsewhere, I did... but in Georgia. Uh, but why? Was it banned? I've just learned because, something fascinating. Wow. Because the founders of the colony believed that it was morally wrong. Well, not really, because what the the founders, what the, essentially the businessmen behind the Georgia Corporation, remember these were all economic enterprises, their grand scheme was not to bring in African slaves. Their grand scheme was to buy up the debts of British and European debtors and bring them over as bond labor oh like botany bay australia right. and see if you allowed slavery in georgia that would undercut the value of your debtor laborers so basically what you were going to do is to take desperately poor people pay off their debts bring them over and then make them work for you until those have been paid off all in a situation that would be most beneficial to you so that eventually, you know, slavery, what happened was that people kept moving in and bringing their slaves with them, and eventually they just gave that up. So the ban didn't last that long, but that's what they wanted. They, they wanted a, a colony based upon a different kind of slave labor that really weren't slaves. But so you've got this whole, you know, you, you've, now here's the one thing. So the, the, there are all kinds of divisions 
between people. The, the, the people were never uni unified, and they weren't even unified around the revolution. This is the, maybe the most important point. The revolution was the first American Civil War. Because in the Revolutionary in essence, War, yeah, Americans I, I, I can see fought, how you can say that. Okay, fought Americans. So the rough proportions there, and I think they're rough proportions because nobody really took polls at the time, so it's <laughs> kind of a guess. Is that about twenty percent of the population were loyalist in their sympathies? That is, they they you know supported the king, they supported the continuance of British rule. Uh, and they would fight in, you know, in, for, for the king. There were American loyalist regiments that were raised. But, but they were certainly a minority. The one thing that's pretty clear is that the rebels were able to mobilize more support than the loyalists were. So the idea is that if about 20% of the population were actively loyalist, about 40% of the population, at least a third, were actively in support of the rebellion. But you see, that leaves another 40 to 45 percent of the population, which pretty much is agreed upon, was politically neutral. They didn't really care one way or the other. They had no vested interest whether one side won. And, and the practical speaking is that for most people, particularly if you're kind of the, the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, it wasn't going to make much difference. I mean, remember, the revolution didn't come along and give everybody a pot of gold and a thousand acres. That didn't happen. If you were poor before, you were poor after. If you were rich before, you were, generally speaking, rich after, unless you were a rich loyalist who lived in an area where your land was taken from you, uh, you were tarred and feathered and burned, or you were killed. People were murdered for their political loyalties. I mean, the situation was bad enough that at the end of the revolution, around 80,000 loyalists, remember this is out of a population of around 3 million, left, mostly went to Canada, or they went to the Caribbean. So some of them even went all the way back over to England. Um, but that's a, a, a sizable, you know, those are people who no longer felt that they had, you either had their property taken from them or didn't feel safe remaining there. So what you had was a movement that never actually commanded the loyalty of everybody. So for every, let's say, two Americans who supported the revolution, there was one who was opposed to it, and there were two that really didn't care one way or the other. <laughs> but now they're all subjects of the new United States. So you could argue, I mean, most people, it's, it's, it's like political history everywhere. The majority of people are just brought along for the ride, or the better way to put it, they're herded in the right direction. Or they you know, take the path of least resistance because they feel that their voice has no meaning anyway, so just go with the current. Well, and the other thing is what's going to happen if you don't, right? What, what, if, what if in... You know, in the 1780s, you went around in the midst of the revolution and you voiced support of the king. Well, if you were in the wrong place, you could get yourself killed. In the same way that if you were a rebel in New York City, which was a loyalist stronghold, you could get yourself killed if you did it that way. Mm -hmm. Later on, there was, you know, there were, there were ill feelings over that, um, mostly on, on a personal level, but those, those could go on for years or generations. But, but what eventually unified it was, you know, the, the United States was basically created in the same way that most nations are created, at least in the last few centuries. It was created through violent political action. 
It was, he was founded through a war. So remember, the United States was never founded on a vote in the colonies. There wasn't a vote as to whether or not we want to leave the English crown. There was a rebellion, which was few, which became fairly popular, but never really commanded the loyalty of the majority of the population, but it didn't matter. It commanded it. It had more active adherents than its opponents did, and therefore, through that and a lot of money from the French and other things, they won. And they won by fighting battles in which people on both sides were killed, by costing, by making it too expensive for the British Empire to continue, you know, to sort of cut their losses and leave, which is basically what they did. And, and it was thanks not to votes, but to firepower that the United States came into being. Hmm. So I want to. I want one of those things, really. Yeah, that we all agreed upon. It's one of those things that, for most people, simply became. You know, you woke up one morning, and now you live in the United States of America. I want to move us toward the Civil War, which, of course, is the great divide in terms of the history of the country, because the people that I'm seeing and the emails I'm seeing and these holdouts that Biden is illegal and a fraud and all that. It seems to be much deeper and stronger. And, of course, then we've got all these uh, groups with AK-47 showing up at polling places and the president kind of telling the Proud Boys to stand by. And so, you know, worst case scenario, if Trump makes enough trouble, and he's now planning, I found out tonight, to do a series of rallies between now and the inauguration, basically claiming that the election he won and the election is being stolen. So he's fanning a populist flame, a forest fire, thinking of uh, one of Laura's elements tonight. Uh, I think that's amazing, you know, the golfer in front of the burning mountain behind him. Uh, and so I think it's appropriate that we look back to the Civil War because I'm I'm wondering if the roots and the genesis of what happened in 1860 actually was part and parcel of how the nation itself was created that this basic division this deep fissure was built in from the beginning and so eventually it had to erupt as a civil war am i off base rick or is there something to that well you know you have different regional developments so again the 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 fault line in the Civil War was between what we call the North and the South. And as we were talking earlier, in the South, there was some, there was, there was, if not everyone believed this, there was a sufficient portion of the, let's say, ruling class in the South who, who increasingly saw that their interests weren't the same as interests of people in Boston and New York and Philadelphia. And the thing that that all came to focus around was the institution of slavery, which was called the peculiar institution, that it was by this time <laughs> peculiar to, to, to the southern states. And that, one of the things about it, is, as I think later on, our, our kind of fixation on that is sort of obscured other differences that existed as, as well. That is, if slave, slavery became the, the, the most obvious difference between the two, that slavery existed in what became the Confederacy, and therefore became a kind of a kind of plank. It became something something identified 
it made the South different in the minds of many Southerners, and it made the South different for other reasons in the minds of many Northerners. But the, the general fact was is that most people in the North or elsewhere didn't care about it. I mean, here's an interesting thing. How, what proportion of uh, white male landowners of the population in the South actually own slaves? Uh, 20%. That's all? So 20, 20%, 80% of landowners, of white landowners, did not own any slaves. They also were generally small farmers. They, the more land you owned, the more you're going to have slaves. The other interesting thing which is, is that about half of those that did own slaves owned one to four. Ten percent. Yeah. Okay. So uh, there was a... So what you, one of the things but see, you I was always taught. Airport. I was always yeah. taught that one of the fault lines, but you know, the creator of the Civil War was the South was economically dependent because of agriculture, cotton, et cetera, et cetera, on manpower, the slaves, and the North looked at it very differently because they were mercantile, they were machine, they were a whole different economic system. And there was this fundamental schism between the two systems that wound up ultimately creating the, the fault line for the war. Well, here's one way to look at it. What was the average person in Massachusetts? They were a small farmer. Okay, Remember, farmer, farmer was the default occupation of most Americans and most people in the world, so it has been. Yeah, because you had so, to feed yourself. You yeah, if you went into the North, yeah, you had to have a lot of people producing food to feed themselves and everybody else who wasn't producing food. And so what you had is that in the North was largely populated by small farmers. The South was largely populated by small farmers who didn't own slaves. So in a kind of economic sense, they're, they're pretty much the same. All of these most parts of the country were largely populated by small farmers. The point is, as small farmers have always known, <laughs> is that small farmers have very little influence over what's going on. All right? Mm -hmm. So the difference in the, is that in the South, you had an elite largely based among the large landowning and very often large slaveholding cavalier class. The 10% or so we had, talked about. Yeah. Well, you know, it could be ten, you know, ten percent at most. I mean, twenty percent owned slaves. Out of those twenty percent, most of those were fairly, you know, you probably had, you know, I think if you really went to the long, large landowners, you're looking at something like five percent oh. overall. So it's a minority of a minority of a minority. Minority, but that's, but that's. See, that's what history is all about. History is never about the governance of of a majority. The majority never governs. Okay, it's always the governments of a, of a governance of a minority. Well, wait, 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 wait. Let me stop you there, because this recent election, yeah. 19 million new voters are what elected uh, Joseph Biden tonight. 19 million new first-time voters, and most of them are young, Gen Z, etc. I mean, this something's changing. It may not be that most people control governments, but in this land of the American exceptionalism, this election appears to be setting some new, very interesting trends. Yeah. Although that 19 million is still a relatively small proportion of the overall electorate. Well. So what you're actually saying is that the election was swayed by a minority of voters recently arrived on the scene. Well, yeah. 
So I, I was yeah, kind of hoping I mean, it was nineteen point five million. Nobody's but... really going to win. Nobody's going to get a majority. That's just not going to happen. Nobody's going to get a hundred percent. They're not going to get seventy percent. You're probably not going to get fifty percent. But remember, as long as you get a third, basically. Uh, of the total number, and just slightly more, just one more person the, than the others that show up, then you win. See, it's a game. Because in any way you look at it, half the people, I mean, there are, there are people celebrating in the, in the, in the, in the streets, uh, and there are other people sulking at home. And they're, and they're probably fairly equal in numbers. Why wouldn't they be? Because the, the split was... But what makes it different this time is that in previous elections that I've observed or been part of, the losers didn't have this burning, passionate hatred of libs and socialists and commies and snowflakes and every other pejorative term they can think of to call Democrats and are avowing, there you go. Are avowing <laughs> not to cooperate, not to compromise, not to do what we have done for hundreds of years. We've compromised on a whole range of things. Now those right. fault lines are really visibly rigid. So I'm Here's wondering... the only what... thing that makes a political system work that r routinely disenfranchises half the electorate. Because that's what happens in virtually every American presidential election. Pretty much half, maybe slightly more, but hey... Let's put it this way. I still say 45% is pretty damn near half, all right? Mm -hmm. So, and if it's, you know, 48%, so it, it's essentially split down the middle, and that's of those who then show up. So the only way that that system can, can work, the only way that, that half the people cannot get what they want is that they can't get that pissed off about it. That's what it comes down to. They, they, they can't really... It can't be that big of a deal. They have to be able to believe that, well, next time we'll be able to do it. They also have to have some kind of belief that, well, while I didn't like this guy and I didn't vote for him, well, it's not the end of the world. You know, it, it's not the worst thing possible. So let's go back to something like the election of 1960, which was, you know. I was uh, just going to say, which the whole Kennedy right. election and then Truman before that, those – Biden has had far more votes than Kennedy or Truman. Well, far there are more, more people. <laughs> no, but I'm I mean, talking proportionally. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, it's you know you can make an argument that in terms of popular vote, Nixon probably won the 1960 election. And and there there was some. Well, you know, there's a, the, the classic Cook County. Little, you know, the... Yeah, sort of, you know, voter fraud, and that probably wasn't the only county. But let's put it this way. Kennedy won. There was probably some chicanery involved in it. In fact, there was some kind of chicanery. One of the things that Nixon decided to do was to not make a big issue out of that, because I guess it would make him look like even more of a sore loser than he, than he appeared Actually, to be. Actually, I, I heard that this afternoon, that as opposed to, I mean, the, the uh, popular tale is that Nixon decided not to contest where he had legal rights to and serious evidence because of the good of the country. But the real story is, again, from people that were around Nixon at that time and write books and all that, is he was young enough to know he wanted to run again and he didn't want to come off as a sore loser because he knew yeah. this pendulum goes back and forth, back and forth, and in the long run of history, all these factions get something of what they want. 
he was going to get a chance to try. And that, that's, that's a, essentially, that's one of the main things that I think... Is that's why the system works, because people look at the pendulum. Yes, but, but what it means is that, in a way, nobody really takes it that seriously. In other words, it's not a matter of life and death. Well, the Democrats are back into power. Well, it's not the end of the world. The Republicans are back into power. Well, it's not the end of the world. So, But see, that's what's been, now changed at a fundamental level in this yes. election, right. and that's why I'm very, very concerned. But, but again, that's, that's the only way that it will work when an election disenfranchises half the population. They simply can't be that concerned about it. it can't, they can't feel that they're, that, they're, that they're threatened by the result of it, by, by the result of that election. They just have to sort of accept it. So, you know, what happened in 1960? Nixon didn't contest it. Kennedy, probably with a certain amount of chicanery, got in. You know, Nixon might have actually won it, but again, Kennedy got the electoral votes. So the system was the, the system, no matter how unfair or corrupt it might be, was honored because that's what kept things going. But wait, wait. When you say not corrupt, you know, forgetting Cook County for a minute, if you have an election and you have two guys and you have two sides and one guy wins, I mean, the system by definition quote, disenfranchises that other 50%, give or take. Right. But but it's worked for centuries. How has it worked? I don't agree that they don't care. I think they care, but they have a long view that if our guy loses this time, the next cycle, we can win and then get the things we didn't get in this cycle. In other words, voters... The American voter has had a long view of history, which is really amazing. Well, it's that's what I mean by not caring. They don't. I mean, they would rather have won the election, but the defeat in the election isn't seen as something which is permanent or dangerous. Yeah, and that's different words, now. The other thing is that your your opponents are basically seen as someone that, well, you know, you you can deal with them in some way. There's, you know, there wasn't that much difference between you know, the assumption that there's not terribly good deal of difference between. The politicians, you're probably going to get drastically different policies. I mean, you know, you're not expecting somebody who's going to be elected is going to come in and nationalize industry and make us all speak Swedish and wear the under, you know, <laughs> our underwear on the outside of our pants. Okay, <laughs> which is an obscure film reference, but I want to explain. That. I was but, hoping you, know, you would not. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, so you know, nobody's going to go. Nobody's going to go crazy. All right, the guy that got elected. I don't like that guy, but he's not going to go crazy. <laughs> Well, so what's different about I, now? I, I and think, and, and, and we, we, we kind hang of, on, hang on. Push the envelope of that. We don't have um, time. We are at the top of the hour, right. so let's hold that. My question is, what's different now? And the corollary question is, what can Joe Biden and Kamala Harris do in two years to the midterms to convince all these Trump voters, or at least a large portion of them, that actually? you know, government can serve them as well as the Democrats. And that's more of a detailed political question that maybe you're not uh, wanting to, to delve into. But that, to me, is one of the key key problems we have. Anyway, we are at the we'll uh, top of the hour. My guests this morning are Dr. Richard Spence, historian, and uh, someone who is a, a well-known member of this of this program and contributes amazing things. I mean, Georgia did not want slaves. Who could have known? Okay, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. This is Frank Sinatra singing about John Kennedy. 
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional timescale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. so nostalgic welcome back everyone to the other side of midnight for this uh sunday night november 8 2020 just a few days after the 2020 election and we're talking about the vicissitudes and divisions in the country that seem to be much deeper than any recent election i mean when when uh, rick when 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 hillary lost four years ago i saw you know a little while ago her her concession speech there's now discussion that trump is never going to do concession. I mean, a guy who's four years broken every norm, the idea of barnstorming and inflaming separatist passions among, you know, campaign supporters who are armed with AK-47s in a country with a Second Amendment, I mean, this is like, you know, dry grass with gasoline 
and a match. Well, it worked for Julius Caesar to a point. Well, that's going back, Mr. Historian. Okay, going back. <laughs> um, you know, but, well, Julius Caesar just decided he wasn't going to accept the traditions or the political dictates of the Roman Senate, and therefore he committed a crime, and he got all of the soldiers that were loyal to him to commit a crime, which was to cross the Rubicon River into Italy proper and the territory of the states, and, uh, but he took Rome. And he imposed by force his will over the Senate until a conspiracy among them assassinated him in that case. But, mm. you know, that's, that's the way often how these things are changed. Uh, you know, it's the way that Napoleon, really a kind of uh, lowly born Corsican and one time off junior officer in the king's army, becomes the emperor of the French. Okay, so how did he manage to do that? Well, his idea was that, you know, a certain amount of audacity, and then apparently God wasn't opposed to it, and that's how it happened. Hmm. So, See, one of the other separations in this country, bringing us back several thousand years <laughs> to the present, is this idea of natives versus immigrants. Trump, ah, yes. Trump rode in on real deep resentment, primarily by a bunch of white people for all these people of color that are moving in and taking our jobs, etc. And oh my God, they're illegal. And that fundamental nativist versus immigrant schism is what I think is going to fuel what could happen next. Talk a bit about that in the larger history of the country. Well, as we already pointed out, there wasn't any kind of homo ethnically homogenous country to begin with. But on the other hand, in 1790, there also wasn't much outside immigration. Most of those, those population groups had been settled there for some time. I mean, the Dutch had been in New York since the 17th century. Um, so immigration really began to take off. Uh, middle of the 19th century. So here's, here's an interesting example. One of the first cases where you've got an influx of foreigners was the Irish immigration in the 1840s, 1850s. All right, so there was a huge famine in Ireland uh, that led to about half the population to either die or leave. <laughs> uh, and then the Irish kept on coming because their economic opportunities there remained very limited throughout the rest of the of the of the 19th century, I mean, and it was essentially an, an agrarian society. There were large landowners and there were poor peasants. That was pretty much it. And the British government, for the most part, did as much as it could to keep things that way. So, the the appearance of the Irish. Now, keep in mind, who began to come in, and there are thousands who began to accumulate in eastern cities was that, keep in mind, the Irish were, everybody pretty much had to admit, white. They were Europeans, but they were Catholics, and they were also generally viewed as backward. And true, most of them were poorly educated, uh, what might be called, you know, Ireland was not at the cutting edge of, uh, of European cultural standards or advancement in that period. So you're getting a lot of, of poor people who were also uh, of a different religion, of most of the of the primarily Protestant areas that they came into, and so the, they were disliked. 
uh, and restricted, and even though they might be white, uh, they were not treated as equal to others. That changed over time, you know. Eventually, the Irish overcame most of those obstacles, integrated themselves. Well, this is the way that they did it. And it doesn't really come about. Immigrant groups don't come, don't integrate themselves and don't become successful by, by making friends with everyone around them and getting everybody to like them. That never really happens. What they did was to essentially build communities in particular areas where they like Boston, where they would then become a political majority and they could, through their votes on the local level, elect Irish into positions of political power, and they could also control the economics of things. See, this is what becomes very important in things. The people who – politics largely is dominated by those who control the money. Hmm, twas ever thus. Right, so, twas ever thus. And thus, again, if you look at the American Civil War, you had a class that controlled a slave-based economy in the South. They controlled the land and the money. You had a, remember, most in both places, they're dirt farmers. But who controlled the money and thus controlled the politics in the North? Businessmen. People with lots of investment capital, people who were much more interested in trade than land. And that was really one part of the whole difference between this, between a, a more agricultural, aristocratic society and a more industrial society. And you know which one won? The industrial society. Mm. So one of the things... Could have, could, could have made money on betting on that. Mm. Yeah. Well, if you actually look at the figures, you know, if you look at the relative amounts of things like capital, railway, mileage, population, and the rest, uh, you know, I think if anybody in the South had looked carefully at those figures, they would never have attempted to secede. It because, but it's, it's extremely a disproportionate between the two. So it's no wonder that the North won. The only thing that's most interesting about it is that how long it actually took them to do that and the amount of, but that was done. And therefore the Northern mercantile capitalist mercantile industrial model won. And that I think was what Laura was alluding to earlier. That then painted the direction of what America was going to become. Hmm. And the South was then opened up and in many ways pushed or brought into the same sort of, you know, textile mills increased. You know, the cultivation of cotton didn't disappear, but the industrial factor became much more important than it had previously. That was the way that the country was integrated. But again, if it was combined, remember, the, civil, the Confederacy was defeated by force. Northern rule was initially established through military occupation, and it was a military occupation. And, but that eventually brought about a situation which became profitable for enough people in the South to go along with that. Uh, you can, the nation was then integrated. So, you know, the Irish became accepted when the Irish became the mayors of Boston when they operated businesses, when they then had to be taken into account. And that essentially is how other immigrant groups do it. And part of building a community is a certain part about it. It's not about making everybody else love you. It's basically making them respect you and have to deal with you. So the Irish are an early example of that. Um, 
you know, immigrants were, were important, especially in the North in fighting the Civil War, because you could, you know, offer them American citizenship right off the boat and then hand them a gun and, and send them off to Virginia. Um, that was done for Irish, Germans, and others. Then, around 1880, a new wave of immigration started, mostly from Europe, and that kept up all the way into the 1920s. And that led to a very different type of situation. I mean, here's a here's an interesting kind of portrait of of New York City, you know, the biggest city in the country, in around 1910. Yeah, the 1910 census. So now New York wasn't like the rest of the United States, but it did have it was the most important city. And in New York in 1910, around a million people were native born. And their parents were native-born. These were people who were born in the United States, of parents who were born in the United States. They considered themselves Native American. Now, now, now when, when, been, when you say native, right. you mean they were great-great-great-great-grandsons and granddaughters of the original immigrants from Europe who came and took the land away from the Indians, right? No, I simply mean that they were born in the United States and their parents were born in the United States. Their grandparents might have been born elsewhere. Okay. All right. All right. So there are about a million of those. There were, excuse me, almost twice as many, about 1.9 million people who were foreign-born. Because, of course, New York was the single biggest port. It was the place where the largest percentage of immigrants, about <clears throat> 75% of them, came into. So we're looking at then, Ellis Island. We're looking at most of the people who died on the Titanic, that kind of thing. Right. And then you had about another 1.8 million who were of mixed. You know, one of their parents was... Uh, a native-born American, another one was foreign-born. So if you looked at the, the foreign-born outnumbered the native population, and then if you also, the native-born population, if you included those who were of mixed ancestry, you can, you can see how much immigration between 1880 and 1910 had changed the shape of this whole city, which again wasn't typical for the rest of the country, but which was the single most important financial and in some ways political center in the nation because let's face it new york practically speaking was the capital of the united states in all the ways that mattered you know, the economics uh, ex yeah except for the, the government set but you can see how under that kind of situation if you were part of the native-born contingent you could begin to feel a bit outnumbered and let's face it there's there's always competition between people Immigrants have to be able to compete to establish themselves. It's necessary for them to do that. And that very often means that you have to work cheaper. Um, you know, one of the great... And, you know, to say that, yes, you know, the flow of a new population into an area will affect the wage levels. Because if employers can hire immigrants fresh off the boat for two-thirds of what they can pay their existing workforce, they will do it. And that means that the guy who loses his job to someone who's working for less money will naturally resent that. So it's one of the things to keep in mind. I mean, there, there are these tensions and conflicts between people that just arise out of, out of the circumstances. So the thing that's happened in the U.S., you know, over the last... I'd say 40 years, is that one of the things that you observe... It is something that you know people of a certain age can keep in mind. 
Think of how many things that you notice today, how many things, how few things that you can go into a store and find that are actually manufactured in the United States. How most of what we buy are foreign manufactured goods. Mm. A lot of Chinese stuff. Now, before that, it was Japanese stuff. I mean, and you can, you can, I would take this back to when, uh, 1950s, 1960s, I mean, other than the occasional, you know, English sports car, Maserati, and a lot of Volkswagens, there wasn't foreign, you know, Americans bought, you know, American cars. That was it. Yep. That's pretty much all you saw. And then notice how that changed. Well, it <laughs> changed in part did. because American cars became really bad, and foreign cars, Japanese, etc., became really good. People bought Japanese cars because they were reliable and they were cheap, right? Yep. They were less expensive, and they were perceived as being a good bargain, which they were. And you can go into the, all of the short-sightedness of American automakers, but notice how that changed the automobile uh, industry in the United States, and then how that affected the people who were employed in it, and what's happened to that industry. You know, there aren't the same number of auto workers that there were previously. Um, you know, the, the strong organization, union organization that they had, much of that is decayed. I mean, this is, there has been, one of the things that has effectively happened over the last half century has been a gradual but inexorable deindustrialization of much of the United States. Mm. And that workforce changed. Uh, much of the main area of employment is, into, is in service industry, which isn't actually making anything, but which is providing services, which may or may not be absolutely necessary. But there they are. There's a, there's a great increase in low-paying jobs. There's also been steady inflation. Uh, you know, if you look at statistics, real income in terms of purchasing power for most people hasn't grown uh, in, in the last 30 years. Mm. Uh, it, it becomes it, it becomes essentially static, and it is. So, are all of these inequalities, in addition to the cultural stuff, part of the Trump contingent that want change, and they thought this outsider would give it to them? And after four years of watching him, seventy million, seventy-one million of those people want him again, even though none of the things he promised really came through. I'd agree with that. None of the things that he promised to do did he, did he follow through on. So why would you support someone who did it? Well, it becomes, <clears throat> I would think that a large proportion of the people who voted for Trump in 2016 and who supported him in the last election were less interested in him than they were, saw him as a symbol of what it was that they opposed, or what they, they, they hated. And there is this, there are a lot of people who simply felt that they've, they've been left behind or, or abandoned, you know, that the situation has changed, but it, it, it hasn't, it hasn't changed for them. It hasn't changed for the, it, it hasn't changed for them. Hmm. I think and, this is the point where I need to bring in Laura, because Laura, you yeah. have a very interesting perspective uh, going back to this uh, author Bernstein and his theory about Trump and what his real, um, shall we say, role in the, in the culture is. Yes, I actually interviewed Jerome Bernstein. He is a Jungian analyst. He's actually there in Santa Fe near you, Richard. Um, he wrote a book about the Cold War called Power and Politics, but I was re-listening to the episode that I recorded with him. It was about 
uh, was in December of 2017, so Trump was in office. And interestingly enough, at around 19 minutes and 50 seconds, <laughs> he made an excellent point, and I really wanted to ask Professor Spence his opinion on it. Um, Bernstein said, I think it's really essential that Trump be president right now. Um, this is just a preface. He said, no one has raised more consciousness than Donald Trump. He takes our shadow and thrusts it right into our face um, in a way that we can't dress it up and we can't lie about it. But the point I wanted to bring up is Bernstein says he thinks what Trump is is an agent of the collapse of the dominant political paradigm that's been dominant in the 20th century up until now. And I, I, I don't know if that's true. And Professor Spence, as a historian, I would like to know if that fits. Um, also, Bernstein says that if we hold to biological evolution, uh, and that would include psychic evolution, um, the difference is that psychic evolution is happening much, much much more rapidly than biological evolution. Biological evolution has taken thousands of years, but psychic evolution, he brought up Freud's famous book on dreams that was written about 120 years ago, and look where the psyche has come, you know, in, in only that short amount of time, 120 years, that the evolution of the psyche is very rapid. So I'm curious to know uh, about this point that Trump is an agent of the – he seems to be playing this role, hastening the demise of the 20th century American persona. Okay, Rick, before uh, you answer, let me ask this question. Uh, Laura, does Bernstein think that Trump is a conscious agent or an unconscious kind of part of the swirl of history at this time, this location, this part of the cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, completely unconscious. Ah, okay. Rick, thoughts? Well, how does Trump, Donald Trump differ from, well, let, let's, let's contrast his behavior to something we were talking about a while ago. Richard Nixon, you know, not everybody's favorite politician. I mean, you know, Nixon, I'm not defending Nixon, I'm not attacking him, but let's put it this way, he summed, he, before Donald Trump, Nixon was often referred to as one of the most reviled American political figures. Yep. Although, really, I mean, you know, Nixon behaved, he behaved fairly practically, but to all outward appearances, in a, like a gentleman, a political gentleman. Well, he behaved like a crook until he got caught, and then he... Yeah. And then he flowed back in the norms where he resigned. I mean, he did. You can't imagine Donald Trump resigning. Nixon was a, a respecter of the tradition. I mean, yes. in other words, again, there was a game, all right, and you play by the rules. All right, so think of it this way American politics is fundamentally a game. And like every game, there are rules, and there are ways of bending and breaking, the, there, there are lots of ways of cheating. Most people don't cheat, uh, at least not to think they're going to get caught about it, but, but they, it, it's a game which is played, and you play by the rules, and then there are people who try to bend the rules and who change them or who simply ignore the rules or will assume that they'll just overturn them and create no, new rules. 
Trump is an example of someone who is no great respecter of traditions or rules. And therefore, one of the things about him that I think that I think resonated with a lot of people is that he essentially said very blunt, unkind, nasty, insulting things to people that deep down, or not even deep down, they thought really deserved to have nasty and insulting things said to them. <laughs> All right? Okay. That, um, you know, when, uh, let's, you know, this, they take one of his more controversial statements when he essentially lashed out at the American military leadership, you know, not the, the rank and file, but the leadership, you know, it was essentially a lot of politicized generals who could start wars, who could never win them, and were mostly about interested in keeping them going, uh, in order to keep their buddies in the, in the, you know, military industrial complex supplied with contracts, and, I don't know. That might be unjust, unjust as a whole, but it's not entirely untrue. You know, it's well, I think it's more driven. People... I think it's more driven by the contractors and by the generals because I yeah. don't know any general that wants to uh, fight a war. Uh, I don't know. You might want to meet more generals. <laughs> I mean, that that other way is what. Yeah, well, are, I'm, 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 I'm thinking of the one guy under uh, under Kennedy. Oh, who was the head of the Joint Chiefs? Curtis LeMay. He mm-hmm. was uh, chomping, uh, cigar chomping Curtis LeMay. He was a guy who really, I thought, uh, Trump was thinking of when he made that statement. But certainly well, not, Curtis, certainly not yeah. you know, General Mattis. I mean, General Mattis is more like General Marshall. Marshall was not like Curtis LeMay. So, yeah, I think there is a real... There have been some, but, I mean, there, there's, there's a grounds for for criticism of everyone in that case. And what Trump did, that I'm using it as an well, example. Well, wait, wait, Trump wait. wait. Uh, just, let's go yeah. back to Eisenhower. Eisenhower yeah. identified the military-industrial complex, I'm paraphrasing, as needing to be really watched because it had its own, yes. its own self-sustaining rocket to where it could create the conditions of war when the country... Would not should not have been at war, and in a his good final argument could be made that exactly what he warned about as he stepped down for office, and which he was well aware of, and particularly as a military man, has come to pass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what he warned of is that you know there, there's a lot of money to be made in you know in in armaments. Okay, it, it is it is the uh, and there is a well there look, at, look, a at, look at look at look at the Krupps, etc. Right. There becomes a vested interest in keeping wars going, mm. not so much at doing anything else, not winning them, keep in mind, because if you win them, they stop. Of course. <laughs> All right. But if you can keep it going, you keep the gravy train going. And wars are huge gravy trains. I mean, just think of it this way. Look at all the billions, the billions and billions and billions or trillions that have been spent in Afghanistan over a period of 20 years without any kind of military resolution ever on the horizon, and not one now. And the question is, people constantly argue that all of that money was wasted, as if it was taken out in a big field somewhere in the middle of, you know, outside Kandahar and burned. That isn't what happened. All of that money went into people's pockets. All of those billions of dollars went on to make a lot of rich people richer or other people's wealthy. And, And that's that's what the war is all about. The war is simply a vast recycling of money. It's but, never about winning. It's not even about Afghanistan. It's certainly not about the Afghanis themselves. It's a vast 
you know, monetary, re, you know, it, it's a way of sort of spreading money around and, and making sure it's in, in the right hand. So there is, there's, one of the things that Trump did is that he would simply come out and, you know, he, he wasn't nice. He was, he was rude. He was crude. He was insulting. But he, he didn't follow, Rick, he didn't follow yeah. up. As president, he no. could have pulled troops out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq, out of, I, I forget how many bases we have around the world. He did none of that. He just made that one kind of flip comment a few months ago uh, at the beginning of the elect, of the uh, campaign about, you know, the rich uh, contractors like Raytheon or whatever and the generals. Yeah. But it was just words. It looks like his constituency really are only focused on what he says and not what he does. Yes, they make the great mistake, if there's one to be made, remember, always pay more attention to what people do than what they say. Okay, you get a much better guide to do that. So, yeah, all of this stuff, you know, if he didn't like any of these things that were going on in Afghanistan, Syria, and anywhere else, then he could have done something about it. He was president, and the point is he didn't. Yeah. And so, what's interesting is you know, that if, in, 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 in 2016, and we're coming up on a break here, in 2016, you could, and I think I said on the show, people are going to take a gambit. Remember, I said Hillary was not win. They're going to take a gambit on Trump because it's like, what do you got to lose? And Becky said that a couple of times during the yeah. campaign. And now, after four years, we all know exactly what we won, what we lost, what we had to lose, what we didn't gain, where we are. And 71 million people still voted for him. Well, here's the question. Did they really vote for him, or did they vote against something else? Oh, now that's interesting. What did that's those votes hang, hang on, that's a great point. Hang, hang yeah. on, hang on, hang on. We've got a break coming up here. Let's pursue this on the other side with my guest of the morning, Laura London and Dr. Richard Spence. And this is from 1964. Hello. Well, hello, Lyndon. It's just great to have you there where you belong. You're looking swell, Lyndon. We can tell, Lyndon. You're still glowing. You're still growing. You're still going strong. We hear the band playing and the folks saying. You're the man who knows just how to get things done. So.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio, with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale, and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio, with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com campaign song for John McCain not too long ago. Welcome back, last half hour on the other side of midnight. Uh, I hope you've noticed how the musical backgrounds and the lyrics and the temper have changed through the decades as these campaigns have gone on. This is, this is culture. Okay, if anybody wants to join this conversation, uh, 917-889-8802. That's our number, 917-889-8802. And um, uh, what was the point we were about to make before I had to go to break, Rick? Uh, I think we were talking about how whether or not many of the people who voted for Donald Trump were specifically voting for him. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Or because they were voting against something else. And well, it's very obvious. Against, it's, yeah. it's very obvious in Southern Florida, as opposed to the rest of the country, that Latinas and Latinos uh, really were 
terrified by this attachment of the term socialism to Biden during the campaign. And they voted because a lot of them have immigrated from Cuba and, you know, et cetera, um, Argentina. They voted against socialism as they saw it in their home country, not obviously imagining how that would in any conceivable way be happening here, certainly on a, on a time scale of one election. So I think that that's probably an interesting assessment. It's, it's not the voting for, it's who you are against. Yeah, and there you can look at a particular community. I mean, if you're looking at Cuban-Americans, you're basically dealing with a community that, that specifically fled the Castro regime. Yep. All right, not everybody. But that, that's, that's why that community is here. And that, again, is a kind of, you know, that, that's, a, that's a self-selected group out of the larger Cuban community. But these are, those are, again, people who are in many ways political refugees. Uh, the devil to them was Fidel Castro and everything Castro stood for, which was communism, which they equate with socialism. And therefore, anything that smacks of it isn't anything that they, they want something to do with. On the other hand, that doesn't turn, you know, I'm not leaping to the defense of Joe Biden, but whatever <laughs> else you can say about him, you know, whatever his mental acuity, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure he's not a socialist. Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that isn't to say that if he didn't think it would get him more votes, you know, it, it, it might work politically, he might play at that, but I, I, don't, I don't think he's that. But the other argument, of course, is that Biden is merely the front man for a political party that is composed. I mean, one thing about the Democratic Party is that it's never just one thing. Uh, it, it tends to it tends always to be this kind, at least in the 20th century, a, a coalition of, well, in many ways, a coalition of, of ethnic or other outgroups that band together under the umbrella of this party to to attain political influence to get mm. people elected who will then uh, support their background. But I mean, here's, here's a kind of interesting question. And again, this isn't, you know, it, the election's over with is, as far as I am concerned. I'm not sure anybody else. But, you know, but I will admit just fatigue with the whole thing. I hope that it's over with. <laughs> but that... You I'm dreamer, you... Come on! I mean, the, the question is... If it's, you were Rick, at Rick, this, it's, it, it, it's 2020. Are you kidding? Of course it's I not know, over. The Trump, Trump is going to go around the country and barnstorm for the next 73 days, and God knows what's going to happen. Well, it will be interesting. <laughs> uh, as the Chinese um, used to say, hey, we've got some callers. You want to open the lines here yeah. and talk to some people? Let me give, you the, uh, give out the phone number again. I can't talk tonight. It's obvious. 917-889-8802. If you want to join the conversation, if you're a Trump supporter, please call in and tell us why, after four years of children in cages and bounties on American soldiers that are unanswered, etc., why did you vote for Donald Trump? Please call in. I want to know. Uh, we have Michelle um, who was holding, let me do this, and we'll try to get her on the air. You are on the other side of midnight. Richard, hi, long time no talk. Yeah, long time. So what is yeah, it, I, what, what, how do you want to add to what we're talking about? Well, I had a few things, um, and I must admit, I was on the train for part of it, so I fell asleep for about 20 minutes. Not your fault, just a long day. Um, 
but I missed some. But the, one of the things that I wanted to say, and I'll get back to the question you just asked of why people voted for Trump, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the Electoral College because I actually still believe that it's quite an important thing, even though it's a, I would say, necessary evil at best. I don't think it's a great system, but I do think it's better than just a pure democratic vote. And uh, the main reason for that is because in, in my mind, it comes down to two things. One, it comes down to the idea that, okay, let's say that, for example, there's, there's three states, California, Florida, and Texas, which are a vast majority of the American population. California, I looked up earlier, is 12% of the American population. So a candidate in a general open democratic election where there was just straight percentages and no state you know, electoral system wouldn't need to campaign in all the states wouldn't need to try and pick and choose which states are going to be the most important ones. They simply have to go to the state with the most population and win that. And that puts even more power in those states' hands than it would with our current system because really right now, as if he was saying, as Richard was saying earlier, you pick and choose and you play the game, but you don't always know which state's going to be the important ones. And that forces them to try and move around. Like, you know, in – in Bush Gore, it was it was Florida. This time, it was Nevada and Arizona and Pennsylvania, and you never know which ones it's going to be, which are going to be those battleground states, and so you have to move around. You do know which ones are going to absolutely not matter in most situations, like Alaska or Hawaii. But I'm not so sure. I'm watching the Senate. I'm watching the Senate race in Alaska. There may be a major surprise there. A major interesting surprise. Well, but maybe not on the presidential level, though. Yeah, yeah. No, this I mean, is... on, a, on a local level, of course. But, but you know, you never know when there's going to be a Nevada or a Pennsylvania or a Michigan or a North Carolina used to be in play. I mean, North Carolina went for Obama in the past, and then it went heavily for Trump, and then it went again for Trump, but by a smaller, much smaller margin than one you know, would have expected. So you just – I feel like personally, I feel like that – actually gives a little bit more it's still playing a game either way because you're still gonna no matter what you're still gonna go where the population is that's gonna vote for that's potentially gonna vote for you or that you can swing to vote for you and you're gonna campaign to that but in an open system it comes down to just pure numbers instead of sort of a shifting game that forces you to reevaluate by polls by the the feel of the election where you're going to go, and it's not always the same place. Hmm. But then on the other side of it, I also think that it's important in the American system that the majority does not always rule. And in my mind, if you believe in any way in social justice, this is an important part of the American system because in most countries, it is pure majority. And oftentimes in America too, America especially, the majority is not always right. They have ideas, but they're not necessarily correct ideas. And when you look at the American, for example, take the Civil War, take slavery, there was a large part of American history in which that was considered an okay thing by a big enough majority of Americans for it to stay, at least in certain areas. And it required us to, A, have a big battle over it, have a civil war over it, and then as time has gone by, we've had to also have legislation over it. We've had to also have civil uh, Supreme Court rulings and so on. And so I believe that 
if you allow everything to be just purely over to the majority, the majority will sometimes be a bully that will make bad decisions and will enforce those bad decisions until enough people decide not to that it gets through. Whereas so you're you arguing now, so Michelle, you're a little bit more. We don't have a lot of time, to, so I have to for the kind of, minority to win. Yeah, I have to kind of move this along. Yeah. <clears throat> you're arguing that the electrical. Well, I'm doing it again. Electoral. <laughs> you know, this this tape is going to be one for the museum. The electoral college system is part of the founders' genius of checks and balances. I think that's the idea. I don't know if it always works that way, but I'm sure that was definitely the idea because, and it also it also allows for America that can grow. I mean, it's it, America. Grow, sorry, that's a train coming by. America can grow in population without necessarily growing in how many states it has, but. America did grow in numbers of states. And I think, I think they knew early on that if they allowed it to just be democratic, that you'd see where it would all kind of break down eventually because the majority population might be in the north and they might bully the south as they did for quite a long time. Mm. And so you know, that's why you have the Senate and the House being two different systems, one being about population and one being about simply two votes each. And different powers. And I think the Electoral College is just another facet of that. I don't know if it necessarily works, but I think it does allow for sometimes minorities to get enough power, just enough power to sway things in a situation where a purely democratic system would always heed to the majority, always. Well, look at what happened in Pennsylvania. It was the overwhelming vote in Philadelphia that basically pushed Biden over the top and got the 20 electric electoral votes and put him at 273. Rick, what do you think? Well, you got a choice between one of two things. You can either have the tyranny of the majority or the tyranny of the minority. Um, I don't... Well, that's you know, it's, the, the electoral college is... It is what it is. I mean, you, actually, Michelle brought up something which is interesting. If you want to look at something which is arguably even less sort of you know, proportionally democratic, is that every state, you know, Alaska's got two senators, okay, it's got the same as, it has the same sort of, they've been, but that again goes back to the, basically the idea that the states are independent countries who are banding together and they have to, they're, they're equal, they're all equally states, they're all equal members of the union, even though they may be different in territory and size. But still, the argument could be made that uh, a small state having as much representation in the Senate uh, as a much more populous one is inherently undemocratic. And if you count democratic by numbers, then, yeah, it is. So, but it's, so the Electoral College is, is no better nor, nor worse than that. The thing there's, I wish sometimes that, you know, the American Constitution has proved to be a a document that has you know that has survived and has proved to be changed. I think the main advantage, the main thing going for it, is that it can be amended. All right, mm-hmm. that's that's really that's really what has managed to to keep it going for the post for it. But you know, I, I don't think it's some sort of holy writ, and I'm not sure the founding. Fa- I know this is going to be heresy to a lot of people. I'm not sure they were geniuses, and I'm not sure they created a system of the ages. The point was they created a system that functioned and had a capacity to change. That's all that it has to do. 
and it doesn't, you know, the system, it isn't perfect, and it doesn't have to be perfect to work. Yeah, but no human system. Uh, Michelle, if you can mute before you come back on. We're, we're getting a lot of yeah. road noises from wherever you are. Sorry about that. Sounds like trolleys. Okay. Uh, but, Rick, no human system is perfect. It just has to be perfect enough to work for most people most of the time. It just has to be functional. It has to be something that you can run a country by. And you can run a country by a whole variety of systems that will all function to one degree or another. And the American one functions without being, you know, really all that democratic and, you know, not in fair number of ways. But it, it's not terribly oppressive. And, and it has room for growth. Like, I'm really focusing yeah. in on what's going to happen in Georgia in the next, uh, what, six weeks? Georgia's going to become the epicenter of this election. Why? Well... Because on Georgia depends the Senate, and on the Senate depends the success or failure of the entire Biden administration. Well, you might get someone else that would argue like that, you, that I... you never oh. want the same party controlling all branches of government, because then it will yes, have exactly. the power to become tyrannical. So that gridlock is the natural restraint. <laughs> well, in this case, if we get... If we if if we break gridlock in terms of the two senators Warlock and uh, uh, I'm sorry Warcock and Ossoff, um, uh, it will only give 50 senators to the Democrats and 50 to the Republicans, and the tiebreaker will be the Vice President Kamala Harris. And of course, there are many issues that require two thirds, which means you've got to get an equivalent number and that two-thirds of Republicans to go along, which means you need compromise. You have enough to do some things, but you don't have enough to be autocratic, and there must be compromise, which is a way, I think, of getting the system back to kind of the center that we lost uh, four years ago. Maybe. <laughs> Boy, you are cynical tonight. I mean, that's why I voted for Biden. That's the only reason why I voted for Biden was because I thought gridlock was better than having someone who was a jerk in office. And, you know, a lot of people that I know, like my mom, she voted for Trump because she didn't care how much of a jerk she was. She just liked the fact that there was a better economy than she remembered in the past. And it's like, for me, it it comes down to this question of are you willing to sell – do you believe that the economy and the prosperity of America is more important than how much of a jerk you have running? Or do you believe that the sort of moral fabric of America is more important than the economy? And I think that's why it's such a toss-up, because half the people believe that the economy and the, you know, that kind of stuff is more important than half believe oh, now that the moral fabric is more important. So you're saying that the majority of that 71 million Trump voters basically just voted their pocketbooks? I mean, my mom and my aunt are both heavily conservative Christians, and I asked them, I sat them down and asked them one time, why could you vote for Trump? Because he's completely and totally against every moral thing that you stand for. And they said, and you know, they're both women too, and they both understand his comments about women and everything else. And they said, well, we don't like him, but he's doing good things for the country. And I just think, how can you say that? Like, And see, it's arguable, and I think Rick would agree with me, and we're getting down to the last nine minutes of the show, so I want uh, Laura and, and Rick to do kind of summations here. 
But, Rick, I think you would agree that he hasn't been good for the country. Economically, we're in horrible shape because of what Trump did or, in fact, did not do. Well, here's a conversation that I have with someone who also was an avowed Trump supporter. I wasn't arguing with him, and I wasn't trying to talk about it, but I just had a very simple question. My question was, what have you actually gotten out of this guy? I mean, what's he done for you? Exactly. All right. And keep in mind, this was a guy who, during since 2016, has lost his job and is living in his car. All right? Yeah. So his, he, the economy has not gone well for him. Um you know, and I said, well, you know, what, what have you gotten out of this? I mean, you know, I mean, you know, he certainly hasn't redressed the situation. You know, you didn't get your job back, nothing else. He goes, well, it would only have been worse if the Democrats were in control. And, and I don't know. I, I couldn't really, and he couldn't enunciate what was the reason for it. Other, and this is what impressed me, is that his his hatred. And I think that's not too strong of a term for it. No, it's not. For no. what he for what he perceived as what somehow not Biden personally stood for, but which the party that he represented stood for, that he hated that so much that he would have that he would vote for any that he was going to oppose it no matter what. And therefore that that's why I couldn't discern I... That there was anything really about Trump that that attracted him, other than the fact that they seem that he he perceived that Trump hated the same people that he did. Interesting. There you go. Okay. Um. Let me let me. I do found one. a media shift that was very similar to that too. Let me because uh, I found out that that. Oh, sorry. I'm gonna need to. Oh well, we're, we're we're basically running out of time, and I want to make sure we get some points in. The farmers in the Midwest, sure. Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin. You know, Pennsylvania, the rural areas overwhelmingly voted for Trump, and those are areas, Rick, dominated by farmers, small farmers, and they've taken a horrible bath because of Trump's trade war with China. Horrible. They've lost markets. Well, they won't get back in 10, 20 years, and yet they voted overwhelmingly for Trump, who destroyed their economic futures. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's like people scrambling to get deck chairs with the Titanic going down. Hmm. That is, you're trying to have anything to stay up. I mean, look, it's not just Trump and farmers. American farmers, when's been a good year for American farmers have been declining in numbers and political content for 100 years. Hmm. So if you go back to the beginning of the 20th century, you still had 40% of the American population lived on farms and worked on farms. What, what's happened to that? And, and one of the things that disappeared with that, which they took them a long time to grasp, is that when your numbers decline, when you go from being 40% of the population down to 2% of the population, uh, you're no longer politically very important. There just aren't enough of you to vote locally or nationally to make that big of a difference. So people, you know, they've been promised. American farmers have essentially, and I will use this term, have been pretty much ignored and screwed over by Republicans and Democrats for the last century. And I'm not sure that necessarily in the greater economic mechanistic machine of things, it could be any different. Time marches on. Agricultural becomes mechanized. It becomes corporatized. Clearly, the American family farm is fighting a rear guard action. Hmm. 
right? But but nothing has really changed in that way. So the fact that Trump did nothing for farmers is probably true, but nobody else has really done that much for them either. But why would and they nobody s- ever will? But why? But but do people understand and that? Not going to. And why did they vote for Trump then? If they're on the hanging hanging on the ragged edge with their fingernails, and he basically sticks a knife through their their you know heart. Why do they still vote for him with such numbers? This psychologically moves directly over to Laura, because Laura, yeah. I think we want some psychological perspectives on what's going on. Yeah, in three minutes. So I don't there think that they see Trump that way, the way that you just described him. And uh, a lot of the psychologists I know see Trump as a narcissist. And a lot of us fall for their rhetoric and 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 what they spew so i know we don't have a lot of time my points no president keeps their campaign promises not even obama did no, so well, I, I beg to differ what was okay. the what was the big thing obama ran on health care mm-hmm. what do we have tonight obamacare how's the, it doing doesn't matter he kept his promise okay okay so richard you saying electrical instead of electoral that totally fits because i mean it is electrical uh (laughs) let's see uh honking and fire in the lobby yes on saturday morning when it was announced that biden won i live in chicago there was a lot of honking car honking and uh celebrating in the streets but also it's a long story i wanted to tell it not enough time uh somebody i know was staying in a hotel in ohio they were on a conference call with a friend of mine uh the fire alarm went off because some people some trump supporters came into the hotel lobby and set it on fire so i think a lot of people voted for trump because they want to keep their guns and my last point is the astrology says that this is not over we've got two eclipses coming up and then the infamous jupiter saturn conjunction well you got i'm done thank you you. oh my god (laughs) obviously this is not the last conversation we're going to have on this uh, Rick, uh, final thoughts. You got about a minute. Uh, well, I'll end with my usual thing: the world will not end. It will change. It will be different, but it's not going to end. <laughs> uh, the process. A lot of things could happen. It's an interesting, volatile situation. And uh, if if Trump can come up with any kind of substantial real evidence of voter fraud even in one place then then he's got something to play on i mean if there's one vote that isn't supposed to be there then that's something that you would that would need to be looked at but if he can't well he can you know he can still rouse his rabble and mobilize his troops and try to turn things but um i think the odds at this point are against him staying in the presidency, but, you know, I might put a little money on both options. More on him not, but I might counter bet just a little bit that maybe <laughs> some way or another he's going to pull it off. Because, wow. you know, look, he got elected in 2016, and for a while a lot of people thought that was a joke. And again, to echo Laura, how did that turn out? Yep. Hey, guys, we're at the end of our runway. Thanks, everyone. My guest this morning, Dr. Richard Spence and Laura London, have given us some very interesting things to think about. I'm still musing about Georgia. 
and slavery. So until next week, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and stay safe out there.